Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hey, folks, I just want to take a minute to ask you to go and rate this podcast. Uh, let the team house know how you think we're doing. Go and rate us on whatever platform you're listening to this on, whether it's iTunes or Spotify or whatever else. Uh, those ratings really help us out, and we really appreciate the feedback to let us know what you like and what you don't like. And uh, if you do like the team house and you'd like to support us, go check out our Patreon page and you can actually support the stream and well as get access to our bonus segments and bonus episodes. Yeah, if, if you're going to give us a great review, please do. And if you're going to give us a not so good review, why don't you just send us an email and we'll talk about it. <laughs> Special Operations. Covert Ops. Espionage. The Team House, with your hosts, Jack Murphy and David Park. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 194 of The Team House. I'm Jack Murphy here with Dave Park, and our guest tonight is Aaron Brown. Aaron served in the 75th Ranger Regiment and in the Central Intelligence Agency. Had a lot of experience in the Middle East, uh, including part of in the planning of the bin laden raid so there's uh there's really a lot to talk about tonight we'll get to as much of it as we can uh aaron thank you for joining us tonight on the show yeah guys thank you very much glad to be here yeah dude uh you know could you start off by t- telling us a little bit about you know how you grew up and what sort of your path was towards uh towards initially military service yeah i had a, a fairly uh standard childhood in the midwest uh, and then, you know, heading into high school, I, I was not a, a very good student. In fact, I, I think I, w- I would consider myself a, a, having been a terrible student. I, I barely made it out of high school. I think uh, I haven't told the, the GPA story in a while, but I, if I was above a 2.0, that would have been a miracle. And so that landed me on track toward the Army. And uh, I went into originally a, a Navy recruiter office. And I said, hey, I, I really want to be a Navy SEAL. And they said, well, you know, there's there's quite a bit of swimming involved in that. I said, well, no, no, not, no swimming, please. Thank you very much. And they said, the Army's recruitment office is right down the hall. So I went down there. And I said, I wanted to be a Navy SEAL, but they said there's a lot of swimming. And he said, okay, then you, you want to be an Army Ranger. Uh, <laughs> and so uh, I signed up. And, uh, you know, it was late nineties. So it was uh, a very, a very peaceful time to go into the army. And yeah, I went in and, uh, managed to make it through the Ranger indoctrination program uh, at that time and went on to first Ranger battalion in, uh, late 97. Cool. Uh, as a 11 Bravo, 11 Bravo. Yep. Cool. So what, what was it like in first Ranger battalion when you, when you first got there? Yeah, uh, I imagine this story. Uh, I'm thinking right now. I don't know if I've ever heard anyone uh, tell uh, the, the the original arrival of a ranger to ranger battalion on your uh, program before too. But uh, that's a, that's a story I'm sure well worn out here. But uh, it wasn't much different. I think the late '90s were somewhat unique because there there hadn't been any type of combat or conflict in quite some time, with the exception of Third Battalion uh, going into Mogadishu in '93. 
And we, you know, Rangers really looked at that as uh, a watershed moment in the transition from sort of the Vietnam era to what was going to be the new era, though we didn't know exactly how that was going to turn out. It definitely started uh, Rangers and special operations thinking about, you know, how the world had changed and, and how uh, dusty fights in, in backwater places were going to be the new norm. And so, yeah, anyway, you arrive to Ranger Battalion as a new private, and it is a it is a hair-raising experience. I haven't thought about that in quite some time, so I'm I'm, I'm dredging it up right now. But you, you sort of arrive to Battalion, and, and you're the new person, and there's quite a bit of um, additional indoctrination then that happens at that point, right? Uh, I remember some of the stories. I, I didn't. I fortunately, I didn't have to uh, deal with this too much. I, I do remember though others uh, having to go through what was, I think, then considered um, hardening of young rangers, and now is, I think, called hazing. <laughs> um, though we I, we could debate that physical uh, correction, the motivational, yeah, right, yeah. motivational, yeah. Events. I, I was okay with uh, the physical correction was okay is that I think the mental part was, you know, some, uh, the more challenging part. I, I don't, I don't know if this is uh, apocryphal or not, but uh, one of you guys might be able to tell me this, but I remember the story being told that the, the incident that I think it was, I can't remember what movie it was where, where the, the individual is signing up to be a member of a fraternity and they have him, you know, tie a cinder block to some sensitive parts uh, and they make it seem like the, the, the rope <laughs> is very short and then he stands on the top of the building and he throws the cinder block off and and you think that you know the rope is going to run out long before the cinder block hits the ground I, I believe that they actually did that at second battalion uh for a while in the early 90s uh and one uh very brave ranger or very dumb ranger decided that it would be better to follow that cinder block off the second floor building then find out what was at the end of that rope. Uh, and that, that changed a little bit from there. So I, we didn't have to deal with anything quite like that, but, um, that was, uh, yeah, that was, that's a, that was a wake up moment when you arrive to Ranger Battalion and you see all these folks who, you know, for a young person uh, like me at that time, you really, you've built up that place in your mind quite a bit by the time you get there. Um, and it's almost mythical in status. And you really then assign these myths to those folks when you arrive. And once you're there and you're sort of, kind of part of the team. Yeah, it's a, it's an amazing experience. It was definitely formative for me. I was 18 when I arrived uh to 1st Battalion and and I was still very fresh and um you know when I left there I was 21 and uh, life-changing uh, experience for me. It certainly set me on a path to a much greater successful life than I would have had uh otherwise. What what was your perception at that point? I mean what were you what were you guys training for? What was the mission that you thought? I mean, no, maybe nobody really knew what the what the big mish was that was actually coming in the near future. But I mean, what what was sort of the attitude or the vibe in Ranger Battalion at that time? Yeah. So, you know, when I first got there in late 97, it was there was quite a bit of the the training effect from Black Hawk Down mm -hmm. and Mogadishu, you know, so a lot of the training events that we did uh, revolved around, you know, helo insertions into, you know, farmlands and then walking up onto, you know, um, uh, fake cities, effectively Mount cities, right? right. As you guys right, right. know them, right? Uh, so these cities that are built by the military to do close quarters combat. And so we must have done helicopter insertion, walk two, 3,000 uh, meters onto one of these objectives, uh, take down the buildings, you know, rescue the hostage or pull out the, the, you know, innocent civilians in a country where they no longer want to be or some version of that. 
And, um, you know, that was, I remember thinking at that time, you know, I wasn't really sure that we were ever going to do anything like that. And then in August of 98, which was less than a year, uh, from my arrival, uh, but after I had gone to, or while I was in ranger school, actually this happened. So I think it was in mountain space when this happened, uh, the, the bombings in Africa, the two embassy bombings in Africa that ended up being, you know, Al Qaeda's coming out attacks happened. And, uh, you know, at that time we all sort of thought, well, this is it now we're, you know, we're off to war. Mm -hmm. And those of us who were in ranger school, I remember we were plotting our, our escape from ranger school because we were so scared, you know, as young rangers at that time, all we wanted to do was go to a conflict, right? Go to a combat zone. And here we are stuck in ranger school and we were certain that the battalions were going to leave without us and that the only way we would make it is if we quit and, uh, you know, uh, hitchhiked back to our battalions, I guess. I don't, I don't remember exactly what our, our thought process there was. It was a bad one, a really bad thought process, obviously, <laughs> especially in hindsight. Um, right. It would have been bad had they been deploying, um, but it was certainly bad that because they obviously did not deploy right. um, at that time. And uh, I, I, I thought about this story not that long ago, and I, I can't remember, other than probably just fear of getting in trouble, why we didn't actually execute that, that, that operation to escape. Um, but, but clearly we were... <laughs> We were right not to, because uh, of course that that was followed up with cruise missiles uh, into Afghanistan and not a not a raid force. Even though there there was planning, and one of the interesting features of my career was I got to look back through a lot of the old um, information on those time periods, you know, from a higher classification level, and see what was actually happening behind the scenes. Because we did spin up to deploy mm -hmm. numerous times in that yeah. at that time period. I mean, we were locked down, it seemed like every other month mm -hmm. at that point, um, and doing the same thing over and over again. Taking, I must have taken down bin Laden's compound in the late 90s a hundred times uh, in, in, you know, 20 different ways. Mm -hmm. And so that was all it was from 1998, from August 98 until I got out. It was, we were going after bin Laden uh, the whole time. But at that point, I didn't really know who bin Laden was. I mean, no, we knew he was out there. We got the briefing on him. But it wasn't something I never really thought about it. I didn't go back to the barracks and think, oh, we might have to go after bin Laden at some point during my time. It was like the, you know, it was the briefing we received before whatever, you know, um, training mission we were doing. But then after the training mission was over, I feel like I mostly forgot that that was even the guy or the group that it's, we were thinking about that time. It's really funny to think back to some of that stuff because when I was in Ranger Battalion, even though it was post 9-11, I remember training for a number of scenarios where we were targeting uh, Mano Hohoi in Colombia, he was the FARC yeah. leader. And, yeah. uh, and, uh, and that mission never happened for us. Um, but now I'm kind of, you know, journalistically revisiting that topic and, you know, kind of what actually happened down there. But yeah, it's it, a lot of people, it's interesting that you bring this up. A lot of people don't understand like how close we come right up to the precipice. Um, like they were going to deploy Ranger Haiti. Battalion. Yeah. Haiti's a perfect example, but also yeah. when, uh, they crossed the red line, Obama's red line, and and that got crossed like we came like that that close to sending the boys in. Yeah. No, I mean that that's you know that's a feature of the regiment, right? That's why it's yeah. kept uh, the way that it's kept and the and the reason that they keep those um you know those deployment cycles so tight, right? You you got to have a force that you can deploy at a moment's notice really anywhere and you know with with an entire you know logistics train and and supply train and and all of the facets that you need to deploy a force of that size really on its own and yeah i i didn't you know and i got out as an e5 and even as an e5 i didn't have any concept of right, what right. went into that right you know I, I knew about my fire team i knew about the squad i knew about the platoon i had a 
hazy understanding of how a company worked, but a battalion, uh, no. If there were other companies there, I, I'd heard there were other companies in this battalion. <laughs> right. I had not visited them. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Is that why you ended up kind of uh, popping smoke from Ranger Battalion? You're getting spun up all these times, but nothing happens? Yeah, no, absolutely. So, you know, it was, I got out in November 2000, and, you know, at that time, I don't remember what the reenlistment rates were, but they were, they were low. Uh, and, and, you know, a lot of folks didn't reenlist. And so it wasn't, it wasn't expected at that time that you were going to reenlist. You know, there were great bonuses, great for a, you know, a 21 year old E5. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember that. And then, but that was exactly my thought. I was like, okay, this is, we're never going anywhere. Um, you know, we, we already had all of these opportunities to go somewhere. And if we're not going for that stuff, you know, then maybe we're not going. I, I had eyes on, you know, something like going to Delta selection, but at that time I was only 21 and you know, that that's 25 was the cutoff. Then I think still is the cutoff. At, at that, uh, at that time, it was like, you know, platoon sergeants. It was like relatively senior guys who went to selection. Right. And he, he, when an E6 went, they almost never passed the first time. Right. Yeah. It was E7s. Yeah, you're right. Platoon sergeants that would go back and, and then make it. And that's exactly who made it um, around that time. I, I had a pretty good buddy who I think went, ended up going up as an E6. Um, but it was just before September 11th that he ended up going up there and he's actually been up there ever since. Uh, and, and, but a stud, like just one of those people where you're like, that person comes from a different planet. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, right know, guy I was, for the job. I was throwing up at, you know, 13 minute, uh, 13 minutes at two miles and like, you know, getting across the finish line by hook or by crook. And, you know, he was like breezing in at like nine minutes right. and then like, you know, like hitting the gym. Right. Right. Yeah, it's funny because I was I was in second bat at the same time you were in first bat. And I remember that time from 97 to 2000, you'd get spun up. Like, nobody thought, I personally thought, and I know a lot of, you know, my buddies thought, there's never going to be another war. Like, like right, right, right. Rangers, we don't really have a job anymore. And It's exactly what I thought. Exactly. You know, and, and a lot of guys left. And, and it's funny because so many of those guys that left from 2000, 2001, tried to go right back in um you know it's yeah like, oh uh, shit like what am i doing that was me uh for sure and yeah i have to remind myself uh if but did i truly get talked out of it or did i allow myself to be talked out of it because i, I over the last um 20 years or so you know I, I think i've decided that i'm actually a pretty big coward uh <laughs> you know i've been put in a lot of positions where I ne- i've never been into combat uh, scenario, or at least, a, you know, where I, I, I'm being fired upon or have to do any of the firing, you know, indirect fire and, and all of that stuff is very different. But I, I have been in a couple of indirect fire uh, incidents or at least nearby incidents. And I remember thinking, I'm like, I, I don't know that I ever had the courage. I think God, no one ever had to put me into a scenario where I had to show how big of a coward I am. Uh, that, that, that never happened to me. Uh, but yeah, that's the same thing. September 11th happened. I was in college and uh, I remember watching it and thinking I was only a semester in. And so I thought, okay, well now, now I gotta figure out how to get back in. Um, and I had a very lucky phone call, more than one, with a, a my old platoon sergeant at that time. Uh, and yeah, I, I told him what my thinking was, and he, he he was probably right. Though some people did make it all the way back to battalion at that time, a lot of people didn't reenlisted and didn't make it all the way back. Ultimately, they most of them got there that wanted to, but they didn't make the first deployment, mm-hmm. which was their goal, and they ended up doing you know menial work for the first couple of deployments. And that was a, a depressing event um, for them. And I think it would have been for me too. But anyway, he told me to stay the course. I'd already decided after September 11th, I was going to study Arabic and really get into this 
uh, a cultural understanding of what we we're up against and and what we needed to know to really understand how, how we got into this position. And and he just coached me and said, look, this is going to last a long, long time. Very prescient for what was then probably a 30-year-old platoon sergeant. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and he said, yeah, just stick it out and uh, stay the course. You're going to get a chance to get into this and, and you'll probably get into it at a better point if you just stick around. And it was probably like phone call five. I was like, all right, I'll, I'll see what happens here. Yeah, that was some sage wisdom, uh, you know, in retrospect. Uh, so so yeah. what, what, what was your path forward from there? So that, that, that story, um, fortunately, and, and actually, unfortunately continues on. So, uh, fast forward to March, 2002 and my platoon, you guys, I'm sure know this story quite well. Um, Neil Roberts from SEAL team six fell out of a helicopter in Tucker Gar. And, um, I haven't told this one in a little while, so let's see if I can if I can get through it. So, um, Tucker Gar happens, Neil Roberts falls out, and my my platoon is the QRF um, for that. So, you know, you guys know, and I'm sure most of your audience knows at this point that you know from November t uh, of 2000 to March 20 uh, 2002, not a lot of turnover had really happened. So it was pretty much still all the same folks that I knew, with a couple of exceptions. Well, they got called up one one talk so half the platoon got called up to go up there and you guys i'm sure know the story right and and the helicopter ends up getting uh a little disoriented uh on the way up to try and find uh roberts and gets turned around and ends up landing pretty much right on the taliban objective at that point and, and opens the ramp uh into crucifire uh right into the ramp and two of my good friends uh mark anderson and brad Kroos were were killed instantly before they even got off the bird uh, and Mark Anderson was my assistant gunner and ended up taking over my gun after I got out of weapon squad. And then, uh, Brad Kroos took over my team, uh, when I was a team leader. So I left and, and he moved up into my team leader slot. So, uh, and then Matt Commons was also killed from first, you know, I didn't know Matt, Matt came in after, um, I left. And, uh, then those guys, of course, fought unbelievably valiantly. Um, you know, some an amazing, uh, combat stories came out of that fight. Uh, one of my, one of the privates from my team, Pazder, I remember this time was, um, he was just one of those privates where you're like, man, I've, I got to spend a lot of time, uh, with this guy. Like he's, you know, he's always forgetting something or, you know, he's, he's, he's putting a thing down over there when it should be over here. He's standard private stuff. Uh, and you know, I, I got to hear this story straight from him. I heard his version of the story, which was very humble. And I heard the story of the folks who were around him when he picked up the gun and basically got off the bird, you know, Mark, his gunner's down on the ground. Uh, and he picks up the gun and gets off the bird and, and starts laying down fire. Uh, and, and he earned the silver star, uh, for that act. And I remember seeing him at a bar, you know, years later, um, and he comes up to me and he says, um, Hey, Sergeant, you know, how's it going? I was like, no, 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 no. Uh, you do not call me Sergeant. Um, at this point, you can call me Aaron and <laughs> a lot of other names if you want to. Um, but, but you displayed uncommon valor on that battlefield. And, uh, for all of the things that I thought about you when you were a private, which again, he was a good private. Like he wasn't, you know, you, you know, how it is when you're like, yeah. A, yeah, you're, yeah, you're a team, a gun team leader and you got a private, like, of course I made the same mistakes and didn't remember that I was making those mistakes about myself. Um, and yeah, of course he just, uh, shined on the, on the battlefield there and, and certainly saved some of his, uh, comrades lives. And, I, and there's a hundred stories just like that from that, that whole group. Um, I'm doing a disservice. One of them is going to watch this and be like, Oh, he mentioned Pazder, but not, um, you know, the, these other ones. I mean, it was just great. Uh, the others, the other, um, chalk ended up, um, you know, having to infill as well, because those guys obviously got pinned down and they infilled the second chalk and those guys had to walk up the side of a mountain. And what I, you know, it was waist deep snow 
so so hard was that uh, march that they ended up flinging their their body armor over the side of the mountain uh, in order to destroy it and not not leave it for the enemy, but also so they could make the rest of the hike. And I mean, you could just imagine what what agony that must have been. And then to get up there to find some of their buddies had been killed and um, that they had been in a pretty heavy firefight. So that happens in March. 2002 and i get woke up woken up in the middle of the night by another ranger buddy who was out and then ended up going back in uh and is about to retire in under a month right now so this is a really interesting way that life goes he, he called me in the middle of the night and you know let me know those guys were killed and we all got together and um flew down for the funerals uh, in florida two of them were, were buried in florida mark and brad um and so we went to the one funeral in one week uh, and that was one of the first funerals that uh, President Bush attended because it was one of the first um, true combat engagements of the war where multiple people died. Uh, and so it was it was a major event. And I saw that platoon sergeant down there. Uh, he had gotten he had moved on from first battalion at that time. So he wasn't downrange with these guys. And, and we had a long talk about how he, you know, potentially saved me from, <laughs> from ha- having to display my 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 common uh, un my common non-valor, whatever the opposite of uncommon valor is, um, as I, I would have probably crouched under the helicopter and waited for the situation to die down a bit. But anyway, so yeah, so that that put me then uh, on the true path to like, okay, this is, I got it again, and I got to focus on this. Uh, and, I, and I moved on from there to uh, study Arabic, and I did a year in Cairo at the Arabic Language Institute and um, finished up my degree overseas, overseas in Egypt and then uh, went on the path towards CIA. Dave, can you uh, give a shout out? Do you have the copy for BetterHelp? I do. Um, hey, so one of our sponsors tonight, we appreciate it, is BetterHelp. Um, uh, look, guys, uh, anybody who's you know been in combat and even people who haven't, everybody needs help sometimes um, for a variety of uh, things, not just post-traumatic stress, but anxiety, all types of things. Um, BetterHelp is our one of our sponsors tonight, um, and it's a... It's it's a great avenue for therapy if you're looking for therapy. Um, you know, it, it, one of the challenging things, I think, to, for people who have been in therapy is finding a good therapist, being able to screen people, finding somebody good in your area. Uh, BetterHelp really helps with all of that. Uh, if you want to live a more empowered life, therapy can get you there. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TeamHouse today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash TeamHouse. And the other sponsor that we want to talk about tonight is GrooveLife. Uh, GrooveLife makes a, a number of different products, including this uh, belt that I am you see me wearing tonight, this little guy right here. Yeah, that's as much as I can show you. This is a PG-13 <laughs> rated uh, YouTube channel, okay? Don't, don't get nervous. Uh, they also make wallets. There's a nice clip-on wallet right here, nice and thin, and uh, you can keep your cards, and it has a clip here for cash. Um, and uh, Groove Life can be found at GrooveLife.com slash TeamHouse, and you get 20% off your order. So that's GrooveLife.com slash TeamHouse. Hope you guys will go and check them out. They are a great sponsor of the show. Um, and... Uh, that's that's I think that's about all I wanted to tell you about them. GrooveLife.com slash teamhouse. The promo they actually code also have uh, great you can get like rings, like those uh, different color rings. Mm-hmm. I bought one, but I don't have a wife. So it's GrooveLife.com slash teamhouse. 
but twenty percent. Is, is that is that how you pick up chicks by acting like you're married? You yeah. know, you're married. Yeah. How did you know? And then they go, "Oh, are you married?" It's like she passed. Oh my! Oh yeah. damn! Oh. That's like funeral Oof. crashing. Yeah. So like, if you want to get pick up chicks, go to GrooveLife.com/slash/teamhouse. That only that 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 gimmick only works in military towns, by the way. <laughs> Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So uh, back to you, Aaron. Uh, you graduate from college. You have this major in Arabic. Um how did you get into the agency? Did you just get on the website, submit an application? I mean, how did that work? And for the you? next day you were in, right? Yeah, um, yeah. That, that all up until that last part is correct. <laughs> um, yeah. So no, yeah. I was I was a very straightforward uh, website hire. Uh, I knew I wanted to go, and yeah, I got on there and filled out the application, and yeah, it took uh, almost two years to get all the way in the door. Uh, and that was a that there was that was a heavy recruitment time. So. That was at the time, you know, if you're doing uh, some of the math here, like a lot of people who decided they wanted to go in the CIA because of September 11th had to complete like me, either college or make some transitions in their life and then move towards that, um, that recruitment cycle. So that was the height of agency recruitment uh, actually in history. And it's never, it peaks then. Uh, and, and, you know, some other historical event, um, which hopefully won't happen, but would have to happen for, I think, it to go ever to get back to those numbers. Yeah, it peaked when I came in. So it was a very busy time to try and get inside uh, the CIA. And what what did you do in that in that interim two years? Yeah, so I got, I got lucky. I, uh, I um, ended up knowing a, a local police lieutenant uh, where I was, and he, you know, it was known that that, that time applications were taking up to two years. And so he said, well, if you can give us a year uh, on the police department, we can send you to the police academy in Wisconsin, where uh, Wisconsin has a program where local police departments, when they're underserviced, can use state grants to send people to the police academy. So it doesn't cost the local department any money. And my only agreement, which I didn't know at the time what it was going to get me into, was that I had to agree to be essentially a part-time police officer where I would just take the shifts of officers who called out or, you know, if they needed another officer on duty for whatever reason, you know, uh, um, uh, you know, some kind of event in the city or, you know, they expected something to happen overnight, anything like that. And I was like, yeah, this sounds cool. And so, of course, as soon as I sort of made it known that I was doing this, uh, every department in that little area uh, was in need of my services. And so I I, I worked at one point for four different uh, municipalities, four different uh, department. So the sheriff's department as a 911 dispatcher and a jailer, that was really interesting. And then patrol in the county. And then uh, the local PD, that was the county seat. And then another PD uh, that was also located in the county that was somewhat smaller. So I ended up going back to Velcro patches. So I would go from sometimes one shift in one municipality to a shift in another municipality. And I would just change the badge and the, and the patches on my uniform and Go check into a different squad car. So I, I worked my tail off, but it was just absolutely. Were you still uh, making that OT time. going from precinct to precinct? No. Oh, so man. because I was technically part time, right? I was working an enormous amount of hours, and because I would take any shift, so anything that popped up. So if it was like you, and we need someone in the jail, you know, at eight a.m., 
I would show up to the jail. I'd work a shift in the jail and the jail was not jail in 911. So you, you, uh, through an eight hour shift, you spent, you know, half your time in both seats. Uh, and I would go from that to a patrol, um, later in the evening and then potentially, you know, go home and sleep and, and start it over again. Uh, it, it was awesome. It was an amazing time. Once you're attached to a sheriff's department in a place like that, you're, you're really, you're a sheriff's deputy before you're anything else. Um, and they certainly treated me like that. I felt like I was part of the team and yeah, it was, it was a good time. So I, I learned so much. What, what happens when you get that envelope in the mail or that phone call and they're like, okay, yeah, we want you, you need to get your ass to Virginia. Yeah. That's a strange event, right? That's it. Equally strange compared to showing up to Ranger Battalion, and and but different in in almost every other way, uh, and that's exactly what happens, right? You, you get the envelope, you call you call the number, they give you some instructions, they tell you where to show up, uh, and then you show up. Yeah, it was. I mean, for me, that was an an extraordinarily exciting time. Uh, I I really wanted to do that job. I was looking forward to you know essentially getting in the mix with all the things that was happening, all the things that were happening at that time. It was still the height of you know, the, the war on terror and the deployments to uh, all the places. And I, I felt like it was time to, to get to work on some of these things. So yeah, showing up, going through the gate, going in the bubble. Um, it's, it's just like all of those things you do in your life. That one's etched in my mind um, for all time. And I can still sort of take myself back there and kind of feel that excitement and, and what happened. And, you know, it's now a long time ago uh, since I did that. I can't believe how long ago it is. And um, <laughs> yeah, it, it's right there for me to recall. So now, yeah, I, I, very proud. Having been a ranger, did you like apply to the to like the paramilitary aspect, or did you go like the traditional case officer route? How did that work for you? Yeah, I did. I applied. Uh, I applied to the paramilitary route at that time, uh, and that's where I thought I was going to go. And and actually, all the way up until I arrived to CIA, that's the route that I thought I was going. But again. Uh, at least me, I didn't have, I didn't know anybody who was in CIA. I didn't ever have a chance to talk to anybody. So I knew very little about what that meant compared to any of the other things, right? I didn't really know other than whatever the little blurb was, um, you know, on the website and then what you could read about in some of the other places, but I, I didn't really know. And, but when I showed up, they had just changed the policy at that time that if you wanted to go with the paramilitary route, because of course this is also the peak of paramilitary recruitment too, paramilitary officer recruitment. So they were getting a lot of amazing candidates. Uh, of which I was not one. Uh, so what they were, what they were looking for at that time was people who had um, combat experience, because there were a lot of people at that point that had combat experience in those uh, engagements, those early engagements in Afghanistan and, and the mid engagements, really, in Afghanistan. So they decided that paramilitary officers at that time, they wanted to have at least some combat experience, and I did not have that. And then you know, like it, I look back on much of my career, and this was one of many examples of where fate intervened and made a decision on my behalf, on my behalf, that was just an absolutely fantastic decision. I did not have any, I, I was not meant to be a paramilitary officer. My personality isn't necessarily suited to it. What I wanted to do um, was not that once I finally really understood what it was, I mean, I would have let, had they offered me like, Hey, you can go be a paramilitary officer for six months. I would have probably been very happy uh, to do that, but I would have wanted to cycle back to what I actually did uh -huh. for um, the duration of my career. So, so when you showed up, you thought you were going to be a paramilitary officer and then you show, they say no, but, but you've gone through this process. So you're still going to be a case officer. Exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly what happened. Yeah. I was pretty disappointed. I went and complained. Um, they talked to me very nicely, but said no, no chance. Like this is, this is how we're doing, doing it right now. And, um, you're going to go this other route. And, um, yeah, I just, I, 
decided that was okay and 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 moved along and, and in hindsight it was yeah fantastic that that's how that played out what what was that other route where they signed you yeah so just case officer so yeah so you know i guess not just case officer that's right. that's how i think about it right but i mean <laughs> yeah so you you go the you go the case officer route so you know you you line up for a date at the cia's farm and you you know you do, you do a little bit of you know sort of on the job training in advance of that and then you go to the farm and and, and if you make it through and, and most people honestly make it through that that's not meant as a as a means to weed people out right that's literally a, a training event and if people self-select out or or people are pulled out for one reason or another those numbers are really small it's not like a selection or you know an sfas or a delta selection like this is you've already been selected at that point and they're kind of hoping you pass it's more like you know op, operators training course type uh event and so it's it's still not pleasant um it, i didn't find it particularly bad but like you know your time is not your own and and it's uh it's a lot of, you know, doing things to just like learn them over and over and over again. And I never really had patience for that. I didn't have patience for that in the Rangers. And I certainly didn't have patience for it over six months uh, at CIA, but, but you get through it and it's fine. Um, and then I went on to serve after that in a, um, a domestic tour. So this is where uh, my, my time as a police officer sort of um, pigeonholed me into and a couple other factors pigeonholed me into my first job uh, domestically, but again, just turned out to be amazing. I got to work with the FBI, Joint Terrorism Task Force. I, I learned early what a lot of people took other, you know, took longer periods for their careers to learn how to work with other agencies and get along and 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 work within the interagency um, community, which is not always the easiest thing to do. And, and getting that out of the way up front in your career is is, uh, is a pretty good idea. In was this sort of like a, a liaison position? Because I, I, I asked because, and I've asked past guests as well, a lot of people are under a mis, um, misperception about what the CIA can and can't do domestically. Oh, uh, uh, see, I, I, I already know, and I, and I want to chime in here because I know it was either on, on a CIA hit team yeah, yeah. <laughs> or or it was like delivering like crack. I was thinking the formaldehyde over the face with a needle in the neck. Yeah. yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> we were smuggling fentanyl across the border. Actually, yeah. that's uh, yeah. I knew it. Yeah. I knew it. Yeah. You uh, heard it here first, folks. Yeah. CIA crack coach came <laughs> epidemic. That, that, D. <laughs> uh, yeah, you're right. Like this is a really misunderstood, you know, one of the things now in, in sort of private practice where I am now that I like to debunk at any possible opportunity, right. Is like, it, it, I always say this um, when, when people give me the opportunity, right. Uh, anybody who thinks that the CIA can operate inside the United States sort of at will and do what they want to do has never been in a planning session at CIA with the five or six lawyers that are generally required for one of those sessions and try to get even the least risky thing you could possibly ever do uh, across those desks and then actually execute. Anytime someone brings up one of these amazing conspiracy theories about what CIA has done, uh, in, you know, to, I, I, I'm unfortunate I'm not being able to draw one right to my brain, um, right now, but like, you know, 9-11 is inside job and CIA was part of it. I'm like, you have never seen, right. we can't get two really amazing, um, operators together in a room and have them agree on doing, you know, a covert action. And you think we got a hundred people together, got them all to agree. And then also to agree to keep it secret. Right. Uh, right. right. Yeah, no chance. Right. Yeah. Uh, remember, remember folks, no one ever violates an NDA. <laughs> right. They, they, <laughs> yeah. work, they work at keeping right. America's secrets. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You trust me. On I that. have mine. I have mine up right on the screen here and I'm like, I'm working through it. Yeah. We, uh, talk about, no, yeah. go back. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and everybody who works in special operations or the CIA 
would be absolutely willing to jump on. When you have a plan to kill 10,000 Americans, everybody in the agency and the special operations units would be, uh, yeah, let's let's do that. Let's kill Americans because that's that's why I'm here. We couldn't even get to agreement on how we were going to take out bin Laden. Right. right, and everybody agreed that should be done. Right. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. You, you can't even. I mean, Anwar Alaki was a great example, right? Like, I mean, uh, they tied themselves in knots for months and months and months and months. This guy was a guy who was, he was absolutely known. This, he was telling people publicly that he was planning to kill masses, mass amounts of Americans. Like mm-hmm. he was saying, "I'm a, I'm a, I'm a criminal. I'm a planning, a, 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 you know, essentially a criminal act, a mass murder." Uh, I'm telling you this. Uh, through my my media persona and um, you know the agencies still tied themselves in knots and whether or not they could and you, and they couldn't get to him that's the other thing right we're like well you should have gone and captured Anwar Alaki I want to be like have you ever been to the mountains of Yemen yeah yeah uh, like have you ever seen what it's like um, to ride a helicopter in you know sort of nap of the earth and then land and then go grab an Alaki out of the Alaki tribe that's a fighting tribe that's been fighting um, off invaders since the beginning of time and you want to go in and, and try to find a guy who's hiding there. No, like that's not, he's going to, he said he's going to kill people. Yes. He's an American citizen. Uh, but at this time you, you've got to weigh the odds here. And I know there are lots of people that come down, um, you know, uh, on the other side of this, uh, debate. Um, and, and again, debating the efficacy of it or, or whether or not it was legal or extrajudicial, you could go on for a long time of that, but, but did the CIA tie themselves in knots? Like you watched, you know, the sort of the Twitter files recently on Twitter, you know, is tying themselves in knots and right. like how to respond to the FBI requests and all of that. Like on the other side of that, the lawyers are doing that 10 times. Right. Um, and I'm just constantly like, you know, don't, don't make it worse. Right. These, this, these folks are your, your neighbors. They're, they're great Americans. They're great people for the most part. There's some bad apples just like there is everywhere, but the, right. the vast majority of them are just great people. You, you want them at your son's or daughter's basketball game. Um, don't make their job harder. Certainly oversight, you know, um, you know, separate branches of government to watch over the others is a great, great model. Um, we're doing a terrible job of it right now, but it, but the, the model is sound. Um, and having an, a professional intelligence organization that is, you know, bounded by laws, but given freedom to do the things that all Americans should be okay with is, it's absolutely the right way to do it. And we have many examples of the wrong way to do it. And, uh, and, and, and they're, they're atrocious and, yeah. and we don't have that here. So, so they should be grateful. After you finished uh, distributing crack cocaine to South Central LA, uh, well, what, what was the next assignment? But but wait, because we because we we actually answered the question for you. But what were you doing? Like <laughs> yeah, on it this- was liaison. Yeah, yeah. So it was. It's exactly right. So um, you know, Joint Terrorism Task Force uh, was one of the primary features of those domestic tours uh-huh. at that time. And so basically, you know, that, that this was a period where um, it was actually starting to work were FBI, mm-hmm. CIA, Homeland Security, DNI as a as a feature of the whole thing, uh, was actually starting to work. And, and you really needed people sitting in the same space, working together, saying, okay, yeah, I can go back and find, you know, that nugget of intelligence that you need to make a local arrest. And, you know, we can figure out how to share that and, and make sure that you're not missing, um, you know, some kind of dot to connect. And we're not missing some kind of dot to connect. You know, if you find a a guy in the United States that's trying to get his pilot license and all he wants to learn is take off and not landing. Um, you can share that with me. And then hopefully we can find, you know, the person who sent him to do that. And then all the other people that that, that same person sent to do that. And that's the way it's supposed to work. And, and it was not perfect, but it was definitely starting to work around that time period. And yeah, and I, I had a small 
you know, I'm, I was a beginner at that point. So this was, I was now, you know, carrying paperwork back and forth. How, how was that for you being in the CIA and, and you're not really allowed, you know, you, you can only at, you know, operate in the United States under very strict, you know, strict guidance, but you're with the FBI, you're with the other, these are the people who don't have those same restrictions. Were there times when they just closed you out of the room? Just not because you weren't allowed, like because they didn't want you, but because to keep that separation very clear. Yeah, exactly right. So th those lines were very bright. They were they were easy to interpret too. Like it was very easy to know what you were allowed to do and what you weren't. Um, and I never really saw anybody get sideways of those because it was just it would have been a career ender. Yeah, uh, for sure. Or at least a, a a career adjuster to somewhere much less fun, uh, and then they would have just allowed you to fix the glitch on your own. Um, but yeah, you're right. It, it was um, no, it never never really came up. Um, there were things I would have loved to have done, especially having been a, a former law enforcement officer, right? Like, hey, can I go and you know help out on this interview of this person? Yeah, but obviously, you can't think of anything more tragic for a uh, uh, a trial. Uh, or attempting, you know, to do disclosure to a, uh, you know, a, a defense attorney, and we had the CIA guy in there. He asked a couple of questions. It was only a few questions, right? Right. Um, yeah. He was very polite. Which you, he was yeah. very polite. And you know that's working because that's never come up. Like you probably, you know, there's not a single story of like, yeah, we let the CIA guy sit in the room for a couple of hours and uh, with the electric it drill. Just, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you don't use it. You just rev it up, and, and yeah. people <laughs> tend to fall right into line. Yeah. yeah. Uh, never did it that's a joke never did that yeah no i get it uh so after you did this uh domestic assignment where did you land after that so yeah so th this is where my story from 1998 um begins to come full circle so i got then the chance to go to cia's pakistan afghanistan department right and so this is where this is the department that was really um fighting the fight against al-qaeda at that time and i'm there then from 20, you know, 2009 uh, to 2012, which, you know, for anybody who's tracking history that those were, these were the years when, when almost all the things happened. Um, and so, yeah, I end up landing in the PAC Afghan department in, uh, so I guess this is 2010, it's 2010, 2009. This is where uh, I, I would quickly um, do a Wikipedia. My, my, my ability to remember specific uh, historical dates is super faulty, but I arrived at the Pakistan Afghanistan department and uh, I'm going in to be, this is going to be one of my first um, base level leadership jobs that I'm going to take on in, but the leadership position that I'm supposed to take is um, still occupied. So I've got to find a, uh, a job to do in the meantime, give me a job and they, give me the inauspicious position of being the um, coast base desk officer. So I'm going to ride my time on a fairly large base uh, account at that time. And uh, so one of the first things you have to do when you're uh, arriving to a new uh, you know, base like that, or one of the first things is a good idea to do, not everybody did it, was to deploy forward um, to your base, get to know the officers that are downrange, and, you know, learn about their operations firsthand, meet some of the, you know, do some of the things that they're doing out there, get a lay of the land, you know, so you can really um, visualize it and, and have a sense of it when you get back to that desk and, and can know what you're doing. I, the war zones were just a different feature for CIA, right? Because you did that same, that's how desk officers have worked at CIA forever, um, right? If you're the desk officer for Bulgaria, 
um, you at some point end up in Bulgaria and usually you spend a longer period of time, you eat the food, you have some fun with the people, but in this case you, you deploy out to the war zones. And so I deployed out to Afghanistan, um, that fall after having arrived and, uh, met those teams and, and hung out with them and, uh, learned what they were doing and ended up spending that Thanksgiving, um, out there, came back home. And there was a major operation happening at the time. And I was, I was part of the early stage planning out in Afghanistan for this operation. And, and um, I haven't told this story chronologically before, so I'm, uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm failing at, um, I'm, I'm both weighing that stupid NDA in my head that you were talking about and also trying to remember um, exactly what the true chronology was of it. So I don't get called out and, and misremember this. But this time, this is when um, they had decided that they were going to bring over a guy by the name of Humam al-Balawi, who was at that time in Pakistan and claimed access to the senior leadership of al-Qaeda and 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 seemed to legitimately have that access. He, he demonstrated that he did have that access. Uh, and he was a a possible informant that was going to come across and talk to the CIA. Nobody had ever met him up until this point. And he had come to us by way of another intelligence service, an Arab, intel Arab intelligence service. Pretty sure the Wikipedia article um, articulates this quite well. But uh, so we started to do the planning for that um, while I was out there. And and th this will be important here in a minute as I move towards the the, the story here. That was a, a shaping feature for me for the rest of my time at CIA. And up until this point, th this very day, I think about this often and, and I make decisions based on what I learned during this period of time. We had this, he, he, he told, uh, he, he was constantly coming up with reasons why he couldn't easily get to this meeting at Cospace. Uh, and we attributed that to him being kind of a coward. Right. Here, here's a guy that, okay, he wants to do it. He's saying he wants to do it, but he's, he's coming up with reasons why he can't cross the border. And and to be honest, like that was a scary border to cross, <laughs> especially Pakistan and Afghanistan. Like he, he and I would have gotten along as cowards had he actually been a coward, uh, potentially if that had been true. Um, but of course it wasn't true. Uh, he was definitely not a coward, um, far from it, uh, or at least not the coward that we had been to mass. Um, I went home. And went back to my desk in Langley, and they finally got to the point where they um, had convinced him, or what they they thought they had convinced him, uh, to come over for a meeting. Then he came over for a meeting um, on a December thirtieth. I'm sorry, yeah. sorry to interrupt for a moment, but this yeah, remind, reminds me of a past interview. I'm just curious: were you working with Mark at this point? Because he yeah, told so I, he, he told his couch story in in our interview yeah. too. I'm yeah. just wondering: so were I, you in the same office? So um, he's very careful um, with his history during this period of time. So I, I don't want to do him a disservice and um, tell a piece of his story that that um, uh, that he protects a bit. But you, for sure, we were in the same. I, I, I'll, right? so I'll, I'll just I know. I'll just paraphrase real quick what he said. You know, on the show was yeah, that there was please. a uh, you had like a chat program back and forth that you were able to talk to Kaust, and Correct. he t the the story he told was so terrible that you guys were talking. And then everything just went silent. And at a yeah, certain so for, point, it became obvious something was really wrong. So for me, um, yeah, so I, I know Mark very well. Um, and, and we've we've commiserated over the story before. And, and, and I got to meet him um, at the location that he was uh, located. I didn't meet him until after this. So I didn't know. Okay, I didn't. Okay. I knew. Actually, no, I guess I had met him. But I didn't spend um, time with him uh, until a good, good, hardcore time with him until after this. Um, so I knew who he was. Um, he was at a different location than I was. But yeah, you're absolutely right. So that day, um, I mean, it was a big day, right? Like this was a, we, we thought we were bringing in 
you know, a potential, and it wasn't an asset at this point, right? This was a, a, a possible, someone who was more like an informant at that point that could potentially become someone who would report on, uh, at this point, he was, he, the idea was he was going to report on Ayman uh, al-Zawahiri, who was the number two in al-Qaeda at that time. And then the idea would be maybe that this would even turn into Bin Laden, which was everybody's focus at that, at that time. And so it was a big day. We started the morning. It was morning time uh, in D.C., and it was afternoon time out there. And uh, everybody was excited. Like it was, if you don't get excited about these things in CIA, right, you're in the wrong job. And so, but there was a lot of people involved in this. And uh, I actually had uh, a conversation over that system with uh, one of the individuals who was going out to bring uh, Humam al-Balawi out of the base. Um, I think I think I have this. I think I'm I'm good here. But the, so I'm, I'm talking with Harold Brown at this point, and, and he's very excited. He's, he's like. He's coming. We're good. Let's. Uh, we're gonna. We're gonna go do it now. That that was my last interaction with him, and so I'm communicating this up. Like, okay, it's 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 rolling out. This is going. There's a lot of a lot of visibility onto this at this point. Um, and then and then you're exactly right. Like we were expecting an update. The update didn't come. It, it, it comms went totally dark, which was extremely unusual. Uh, and we're like, what? What's going on? Can, um, can, can I ask you a question? Um, and I don't know. Because I know you were very far removed from this in terms of distance and what was happening immediately on the ground. But from your understanding, was it always the intent to bring him right in? Be or can, do you know that process? Can you tell us what happened there? So um, let me let me make sure I get all the appropriate stuff out here so I can do everybody the service that they um, deserve when I um, tell the story publicly because it's... I I, th I think this is a story that deserves to get told publicly, and I and I constantly go back and forth. I'm like, is it is it my story to tell? Do I have a piece of this that gets it told? Should it even be told? Um, you know, are we doing a disservice to the families? And I, I battle with this a lot um, in myself um, right now. But I, I I ultimately come down that it is a story that needs to be told because there are so many really important lessons in here, um, and there are so many people that did so many things right, um, and even the things that get that help that get held up as being done wrong, in my opinion. Um, they, they've been made bigger, um, in hindsight, I think there, there were mistakes. There's there were absolutely mistakes. Um, but, but what you're hitting on right now is, is, is should the search have happened sooner? Um, and, 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 and the, the answer is absolutely right. Yeah, it should have been, but I'll, I'll say this, I'll say this right now. Um, searches were not a, that was, it wasn't a necessarily a totally common feature at that point. Right. It wasn't like everybody got searched and this guy didn't like that wasn't the case. Uh, it ended up being the case that everybody got searched, but it was only after this. Mm -hmm. um, it, lots of people did get searched, but there were definitely, there were lots and lots of exceptions. And most of the exceptions were for really good reasons. You know, uh, CIA is a rapport-based um, organization and, you know, searching someone um, out in the middle of, you know, coast is is um, a rapport reducer. Uh, but in this case, you know, you, you, that's a trade-off you should be able to make. And, and really good case officers will tell you, you can earn that rapport back a million different ways you take that risk for this very specific reason um but yeah it, there there was originally a plan uh to to search him that was before that um incident and i suspect we don't know unfortunately um what what exactly happened that transitioned that plan i have i have some suspicions and some ideas um but but they 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 can't be founded at this point they're, they're, there's no one to comment on this at all um so he he ends up coming in 
And, and this is where I can speculate. I think what they ended up doing, but we don't know, nobody knows, is that they thought that they would search him closer to the meeting site. Mm-hmm. And that, but at this point, right there, the thought process is not that there's at no point did anybody think he was going to blow up the place, right? right. Like nobody was like, this is what we're worried about. Like that didn't come up. That wasn't even in the risk matrix. Like nobody was like, oh, and there's also this, this possibility, right? It's like, does, you, you want to make sure he doesn't bring a weapon. Maybe he's going to get upset. Maybe he's going to change his mind. Maybe he's been coerced into carrying something on, on behalf of uh, the enemy. We don't know that. Um, I think, or maybe he's a double agent, right? Like, but a double agent from the perspective of like, he's going to consume whatever information he gets out of this meeting and take it back. That's what was really at the top of the threat matrix there. Do we give this guy sensitive things or sensitive information about our gaps? Um, and he's going to take them back because that, that happens all the time, obviously in espionage. Um, and yeah, instead of course, um, he gets out of the car, the, the GRS officers, um, go to approach him immediately recognize he gets out on the wrong side of the car, which is, I think, you know, to, for the GRS officers, they, 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 this, the reports from the ground was it was clear that they understood something was going wrong at that point, but didn't, again, it happened so quickly. I don't think they immediately knew what it was. They advanced on him. Um, and then of course, um, very infamously, he, he detonated a, an enormously huge suicide vest, um, and killed, uh, seven, uh, CIA agents at that time, including the GRS officers that were going up uh, to get him. Uh, and then, um, two, two, one, one, um, foreign service, or one officer from a foreign service and then one local Afghan commander uh, at that time. And so, uh, yeah, that was an, an amazing event, obviously, in the history of the CIA, but also in my personal history um, as sort of having, you know, just had Thanksgiving with some of these folks, having just talked to Harold Brown moments uh, before this happened. And, and, and he was, um, of course, killed in this. Uh, and he's a fantastic guy. I'm just an amazing guy. Uh, left behind a wife and kids and uh, many of them left behind families. And uh, but that one was particularly um, acute uh, for me. I knew, I knew Jennifer and I, knew, uh, I went to training with uh, Liz. Like it was, uh, uh, you know, a, a fellow Ranger um, from first battalion, obviously. Um, and yeah, I didn't know him, uh, but, but, you know, still sort of an interesting way that history comes around. Um and, and, you know, uh, Darren was key to that um, whole engagement, too, and, and for all intents and purposes, was just a stellar officer. Uh, anyway, so, yeah, I'm sure I'm leaving something out here that I, I want to say, but um, so most of the mistakes that make it out here right now, I think people misunderstand them. Um, there's a lot of passion and emotion uh, behind this. You know, there's a lot of people that give grief to, um, in some cases, people are no longer alive and can't defend themselves. And, 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 and certainly there were mistakes made there on the ground, but at no point was anybody, even the people who were saying, hey, something's wrong here. And there were people who definitely raised their hand and said, raised their hand and said, something doesn't feel right about this, which is a standard feature of you know CIA risk mitigation. But at no point was anybody like, hey, I think there's a chance this guy's going to blow himself up. Like right. just didn't, it didn't come in one, not one time. Did anybody say, hey, has anyone considered that maybe he's going to have a suicide vest uh, on him? And I'm certain, I'm fairly certain, I shouldn't say I'm certain because there's no way to be certain. But I, I, I have to feel pretty confident that GRS was moving toward him to conduct that initial search and just had not gone through the calculation of people within 50 meters were at risk um, at that point. Of course they were, but um, I just can't imagine that that's, that had to be what was happening at that moment. in, in my opinion, Sorry, I went longer on that. No, no, no. I was like no, speaking of English. What what was going on for you and, and your your teammates in the office as all this happened and unfolded? Yeah, so you know, um, a good friend of mine was the chief operations at that time in the in the department, 
Uh, that, and that's the number three there. So senior guy in, in what that time is was the largest department in all of CI and, and, and still at this point, just like all the things at that time, that was the largest and there's not, not been a larger um, up until now. And, um, you know, we were close at that time and um, they called us into one of the conference rooms, you know, sort of anybody who was directly related to the op. Um, and yeah, I remember he just, he, he sort of broke down in tears and said, he, 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 uh, Balawi fucked us. He fucked us. Um, and, uh, and then of course he just, you know, he told us a number of casualties, number of people were dead. I don't, we didn't have, I think a full accounting of what was happening right at that moment, but it was, it was already known that a number of people, um, had been killed and injured. Um, and there were people out there at that time who were from the, the department, um, to support this. So like people who were like, you know, would be in that desk right there. Um, if they weren't out there with, Kids and families right there, which I think was all what we always thought about. And, um, you know, one in particular was was thought to have been mortally wounded. Turns out wasn't, um, but but had a shrapnel go through his brain, uh, survived it, and um, uh, continues in the fight today, actually. Um, but, but yeah, the injuries were also, you know, massive for some of these folks. And so, yeah, at that point, we just consumed that. And frankly, I don't, I don't remember it. I can't remember any of the day. Um, after that, as I sit here and think about it, I, I can't remember what we did um, for the rest of the day, but I think we probably just circled up and started talking about it and trying to figure out uh, what to do next. What, to, did, what did you guys do next? Like, what, what, was, what was the fallout from this and how did the agency respond? Well, we definitely built a list uh, <laughs> who we thought was responsible. We were very good at building lists at that time, uh, and it did not take long um, to, to build out that list. And I, I will be, I will be glad to, um, call him out and, and ask him if, uh, he wants to come meet me somewhere. There's only one man left alive on that list. And that's, uh, Sirajuddin Hikani, who's in the Afghan government now as the Taliban takeover. So, um, that man was absolutely in the, in the, in the, the upper level decision tree of that. And, and he is the, I think, I, I believe, I haven't looked at that list in a long time, but I believe he is the, the last person standing, uh, on that list. So that, that man is a marked man. Um, in my opinion, um, but he is a little bit untouchable, I think, right now from a, a policy standpoint, or at least, anyway, you can imagine um, the, the 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 tangles that are involved in that. But um, yeah, so we we did we got a list, um, and then of course, you know, the the investigation started, I think, immediately um, into you know what went wrong. Lots, lots, lots of um, conversations about what happened when and and who was to blame and what do we need to do immediately? And of course um, they, they instituted a policy. I'm sure that I think they did a stand down operations, but it wasn't long. You couldn't do a long stand down operations in that environment. And they rejiggered. And at that point then everybody had to be searched. So they went way deep um, yeah. into the, um, the sort of the knee jerk response, which you can't blame them for that. Like that was right. an easy call at that point. Like everybody gets searched for now until we figure out why, why we, we didn't do better here. Um, and that stuck around for a long time. Um, I went back to, uh, you know, a war zone many, many years after that. Um, and that policy was still pretty strict yeah. at that time. It had been delegated down a little bit, the uh, the ability to make exceptions. But, um, you know, we were still having to, like, bring rapport back from, like, local liaison partners um, who were allowed to carry guns, like, under our base who would, like, get searched and, like, what are you looking for? I'm carrying a gun. Yeah. Like, um, and you're not taking it from me. I own this land underneath your feet. Um, and so we didn't, that one never really, I, that one's still not calibrated right, I'm sure. But it's also, it's a disappearing what, adventure. Was there, so. what was the environment after that, directly after that, was it, was it 
very cooperative and understanding? Was there some scapegoating and finger pointing? Like what, what was it like? Yeah. Um, oh yeah. I mean, yeah, it's certainly finger pointing, certainly, um, scapegoating, you know, so, um, this is one of the pieces, you know, I'm, I'm, I talk about this a little bit now as, you know, I, when I talk to groups about, uh, how to do appropriate risk calculation and, you know, how to think about risk and then make decisions when you can't totally eliminate risk. Right. And, and that, that's a really, um, hard thing to do. And, and the agency, um, failed at it a bunch, but really started to get pretty good at it. And, and frankly, is pretty good at it. Um, when you compare everything that they've done over the years and, and not failed at, not had huge catastrophes happen. Um, the scorecard is, is, is really good for the agency but of course these tragedies they they go public and and the and you know every time you do a really hazardous mission and that no no shots are fired nobody gets harmed that doesn't go you know in the uh, really awesome column nobody sees the really awesome column um and the really awesome column is is stacked mm -hmm. um at CIA especially during this time period um but yeah there's certainly finger pointing um but when I talk about the risk like the thing that the agency didn't do very well at that time and, and maybe and I would say it probably doesn't still do that well because it just isn't formed to do this. It doesn't have, it didn't have an ultimate leader at that point for the operation, right? Because this was, this was a, you know, an asset coming onto a base with potential information that was really important. You know, there's lots of people who had a stake in that, mm -hmm. um, you know, senior leaders at the agency who's all the way up to the director, whose careers were, you know, make made or, or broken by this all the way up to Panetta. Like, you know, he was tracking this minute by minute. Um, you know, the director of CTC was uh, was very focused on this, but he he was not exactly leading it, but he was influencing activities that were happening on the ground. So now you've got a very senior person influencing things, but not responsible for the ultimate leadership. Right. The base chief, you know, quite famously, um, Jen Matthews, who, who I liked a, a great deal. Um, I, I mean, she was a rough, um, she was a, um, not a rough, she was a um, sort of, um, she grew up in a time in CIA when like women officers were, you know, didn't have, this is where I'm going to like, I'm going to get myself canceled here. If she I don't, she, if I'm she was like one of the first targeting officers, right? She, she was chasing bin Laden in the nineties. Mm -hmm. uh, right. She's one of the first people that came forward with that group of women that said, this guy's going to do something crazy um, before September 11th. Right. She was part of that cabal uh, of women. And I mean, this is when like, it was not easy in the agency to raise your hand as a woman and say, you know, you guys are wrong. Um, and, and we're right. Um, and at that time it really was like, a, it was a group of, I think four or five women, um, at that time that really were like raising the flag here. And, and, um, you know, this story has been told a billion times too, and from 10 different angles. And, and I'm sure I don't have it right because I'm not an expert on this part of the story, but like, you know, they felt like no one was really listening to them. Mm -hmm. I think there's lots of people who say, yes, we absolutely listened to them, but like, what were we going to do? Like we didn't have all the information. And so I won't, I won't bring down a, a decision on who was right or wrong there. And I'm sure I've already mistold that story, but she was part of that group. Um, and then she grew up um, the rest of her time in the organization, um, you know, sort of battling these battles all the time. So she was, um, when I say rough, I mean, she was like a no nonsense person. She was very sharp, super smart, um, knew her stuff, and she's in this, you know, she's now essentially a battalion commander in a war zone, um, which, you know, there are lots of people who ended up in that role that had never been battalion commanders in war zones before. But here she was in a woman um, in this spot and, and having to deal with, frankly, I mean, majority of of men there that thought that they knew the job better than she did. Um, and many of, many of them, I'm sure, did, right? They, they spent entire careers there. Um, 
but you can just imagine like the pressure that she's in here. And now she's got the biggest thing happening in CTC on her base. Right. Um, and, and she is ruthlessly trying to get to the end of this, um, fight with Bin Laden. Like this is her life's mission at this point. So she is really going to push the envelope, um, to make this happen and to make sure it goes right. Um, and so she's just having to make a decision after decision, I think. Um, and again, we can't know, um, unfortunately what exactly, um, transpired there. And there's a ton of people who will line up right now and, and say she, it was her fault. She made tons of bad decisions and that's, that's why this happened. I am not so quick. Um, to, to take that, uh, position because I can't put myself in her shoes or think about all the pressure she was under and who was calling her. Right. We don't know about those phone calls. Nobody stepped forward and said, yeah, you know, <laughs> I, I called her and told her to do this. Yeah. And then she got another call and it was someone more senior or laterally senior. Um, you know, and so I really don't know. Um, but, but, but gosh, for, for those of us who've been in those types of situations before, if you don't give the person making decisions at that point, a little bit of grace, right. Um, in this case, obviously like um, a bunch of people are dead and, and, and that's going to constantly be something that people have to think about, um, you know, for the rest of their lives and kids will grow up knowing about, and that makes it hard. But, um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not as quick to point, um, fingers at her. If I point a finger at something, it really, I think is, it's the, the feature of CIA that's tricky here because there's just not a leader. Like if this was being run by a JSOC unit, right. There would have been an 06 or something. Um, that would have had ultimate control unless things were going really sideways. The final decisions would have all rested with that 06. Um, they would have done the risk calculation. They still could have made the wrong decision, um, but this, the process for leadership would have been much more streamlined. And when you're dealing with risky decisions, you really do need a decider. Right. Um, you do not need, and, and agency, is, agency is really good because it can um, sort of do things by committee fairly well, where at the end of the day, the only person in in the agency in traditional espionage, it really needs to make a decision is the officer on the street um, when it's sort of game time there and there's nobody to ask. Um, and they want you to be able to act like that. Right. Um, well, that doesn't work in a military environment when the hazard is much higher and you have what effectively is a tactical situation being driven by an organization that was not ever really designed to be a tactical organization, at least outside the paramilitary arm. So yeah, it, it's tricky. It's one that I, I think about all the time. The lessons there are, are plenty. Um, but yeah, when, you, when you're thinking about risk, and you're going to make a risky decision. Someone has to be in charge, and right. everybody has to know that that's the person in charge. And and because this guy, you know, didn't fit like the profile of a suicide bomber, who are who are generally like not as mentally sharp, impoverished, you know, they're, like like there 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 are certain models. But now you're talking about probably what they assumed was a well-placed man in an organization who had access. He wasn't like the courier. He wasn't, you know, um, and so back at headquarters, probably the idea of risk to them was the risk of pissing him off and not having a source, right? They're this thinking, is true. They're thinking this in, in the terms of human intelligence. Well, we risk, you know, what's the risk? Not a suicide bomber. The risk is alienating this man and not getting his intel. So yeah, I, I, you're, you're, you're keen in on some, I, I'll say one thing real quick. I would say many of the suicide bombers we encountered in Afghanistan and some of the other places in the ISIS suicide bombers were oftentimes, um, you know, lower educated folks, right. lower economic status, but a t an enormous number of people who decided to kill themselves in the name of jihad were extremely sophisticated, well-educated, in some cases very rich, you know, the 19 hijackers um, all came, not all, but predominantly came from fairly well-off families with backgrounds you also wouldn't have put in there, right? These were not um, poor people. 
um, you know, and um, other folks in some of the other uh, places that aren't war zones where, you know, Al-Qaeda or ISIS isn't going in essentially saying, hey, if you blow yourself up, I'll give your family, you know, $2,000 and you'll go, right. uh, you know, paradise and 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 you'll live ever after in um, Valhalla, essentially. And um, that, I mean, I don't know what the numbers look like when you compare them up. I'm sure that number is much larger, um, but you, that's not necessarily the measure. Um, at least that wasn't the measure. I don't think that we were going by there because I think if I looked back, I, I, I'll be honest, anybody who ever asked me, like I was, if I'm being honest with myself and somebody said, Hey, had you been there? And they said, Hey, we're going to move the search point up from, um, the guard post at the gate to GRS in the dusty compound, um, for some really good operational reasons, you know, operational security, a little bit of rapport, we're still going to search him. I don't know. And I don't know this conversation happened. So they could have been like, Nope, no search. We're going to bring him right in. I don't know. Um, but had you said that to me and I was out there, if I'm being honest with myself, I probably would have been like, okay, yeah, yeah. this is, I, this is fine. Right. Um, we're still going to search him. It's okay. Um, at no point, I, I know for a fact, I would not have thought he's going to blow something up. That's going to launch BBs so fast and so hard. That's going to go through steel beams, um, a hundred meters away. Right. Uh, and so, um, yeah, I, I think the decision at that point was exactly as you sort of outlined it, where it was like, well, we're doing this regardless. This is what we get paid for. Um, not only what we get paid for, it's what we're expected to do as our duty. And so had someone come in with like a piece of intelligence, in my opinion, and said, hey, you know, the psychologists say, or we've got a little piece of information that suggests um, Balawi could like be considering blowing himself up. Or like we've, we've looked at the video and it doesn't look like he's actually injured, like he's been claiming. So I, in my opinion, I would have been, I would have come down on that we're doing it anyways. Mm -hmm. We're going to, we're going to risk it anyways. Now we're going to move the search point well out. Um, and, and we're maybe going to, you know, hazard a, um, you know, an Afghan uh, private from, you know, the Afghan army who controls the border point, you know, st you're still risking somebody's life, but in a much different capacity. Right. Um, and, and you're still bringing him over and you're still going to see, is there something here that we need to be aware of? Because the, his story, the way he wove it, I mean, he was brilliant. He did a great job um, from the perspective of a double agent. You hear lots of times that he was a triple agent. It's really hard to actually be uh, a triple agent there requires some high level trigonometry to figure out what actually constitutes a triple agent, but like effectively it was a double agent. Right. Um, and he wove that story extremely well. They knew at that point exactly what would get us spun up CIA. They knew how to provide the bona fides that we were going to look at and say, okay, this adds up. This is what we'd expect to see from someone with this level of access. Um, and then a lot of information about his history and how he was recruited and all that sort of broke down or didn't come through or, or people didn't consider it enough as they should have. I mean, in hindsight, it is not hard to figure out where this went wrong, but also in hindsight, when I've looked back at it, I'm like, it's not, it's not even, it's not even that much clearer, right. except that, you know, he blew himself up, which is right, right, super right. clarifying. Yeah. So as the, the dust settles literally and figuratively, uh, you remained on the AFPAC account for a while. I mean, what what did they they have you working through that list that you guys <laughs> just uh, came well, up with? Well, there were many lists that time, right? Yeah, that was yeah, uh, that yeah, that was a very um that was an effective period uh in in America's fight against Al Qaeda. I mean, if you uh, um I don't know if you I'm sure you guys are familiar with the Long War Journal. Um if you're not, uh, the Long War Journal, I'm sure, uh, it's probably still being published now but much less read. Um, they were documenting sort of that war by uh, day by day, the fight against Al-Qaeda, and they did an unbelievably fantastic job. We were constantly looking around the vault and be like, which one of you is is reporting to the Longmore Journal? Um, and that it's a, it was a website, uh, a, a um, you know, essentially a, a daily 
uh, newspaper for um, the war on terror there in that region, not just that region, but they were really good in that region. Um, and, and it was like every day there was some pretty um, amazing successes. And it was the fact that it was such a successful period that also I think led people to maybe become uh, overconfident in our abilities to, to get things done there. Uh, but you're right. So this was, that was, you know, the end of 2009, we go into 2010. Um, I, I move into this position, you know, as a, a mid-level leader there. And then, um, you know, the fall of 2010 um, rolls around and, you know, when you get into one of these leadership positions, you generally get thought of as part of the committee that sort of helps to make decisions about things, or you're at least brought in and talked about um, things that, that transpire. And, and um, the HVT1 team, High Value Target 1, the Bin Laden team, had been you know doing their thing that they've been doing for, for years at that point and running out tons of leads. And they had found a historical leadership facilitator who we now know is Abu Ahmed al-Kuwaiti. They had located him in Peshawar, Pakistan, using some pretty sophisticated um, SIGINT and surveillance means. And they had a, an entity followed him back to a, an amazing house in Abbottabad, Pakistan, an amazing by, by standards in Abbottabad. Uh, and the, I, I don't know if the, again, this is one of those stories I'm not hundred uh, percent, it's true because I didn't hear it firsthand, but some version of that went when the, the individual who was one of the individuals that followed, um, AK, as we called him to this house, got to the house and said something along the lines of like, oh shit, knowing at that point, once he saw the house, like this is something. Came back and, of course, that started to make its way, whispering around the halls of the APEC department that um, Abu Ahmed al-Kuwaiti had been uh, discovered doing some pretty amazing phone OPSEC security, phone security. He was using one phone in Peshawar, shutting it off, and then um, he had a, a local phone that he was using in Abbottabad for you know, the persona that he had adopted in Abbottabad and his family had adopted. Uh, and he was doing a pretty good job. This was just a a hard sleuthing, um, targeting effort, targeting an operational effort to find that he was communicating when he was in Peshawar. He made the smallest of small slip ups in saying something to the effect of um, over over the phone, you know, I'm still working for the same guys I used to work for. Uh, and, the, and these folks who knew at that point, Abu Ahmed Kuwaiti's story were like, okay, but well, this is something here. And then when he showed up back at the house, you know, in, in the fall of 2010, I think everybody was kind of like, okay, this is definitely something. Uh, and at that point, you know, a, a very small group of people were brought into that and, and they started thinking about, okay, how are we going to, how are we going to figure this out? What are we going to do? And what resources do we need? They went to the president pretty quickly thereafter. Um, and president Obama, um, to his credit was like, you unlimited resources. Um, you have no budget. There's no ceiling on this. Um, get to it. We are very lucky. America is very lucky that the director at the time was a guy by the name of Leon Panetta, Uncle Leon, as many of us uh, think of him, or I do, my, my favorite director. Um, just a straight talking, mostly straight shooter. And when he wasn't a straight shooter, it's because he was doing something crafty most of the time that he didn't want everybody to know about. Um, he's a little bit like Columbo. I kind of think of him. We're like, one more thing. Uh, I know all your secrets. <laughs> um and so I loved him, but I think he was one, he had a very good relationship with Obama. So like Obama really trusted him, but then he was also willing to push the envelope on things that others might've been uh, less risky toward. Um, and so, yeah, we, we move forward. 
uh, I, I'm doing nothing at this point, but like sneaking into the meetings. Like anytime I like look on the schedule and see, cause it's hard to kick out um, a branch chief or uh, I guess an active branch chief at that time from these meetings, right? It's like, oh, this is going to be awkward if we ask Aaron to leave, but he's <laughs> not actually invited. It's no joke. Like I did this throughout my career where I'd be like, I'm just going to show up. Right. If they kick me out. Um, so I was regularly like sitting in the back row of these meetings as we're running up to it. And then finally it becomes pretty apparent that, you know, there's a good chance. Anybody who says that they knew this was bin Laden when those helicopters launched is absolutely lying. There was nobody knew. There was no, nobody knew. The Pakistanis didn't know um, that we in the PAC Afghan department didn't know. The president certainly didn't know. It, it what, was not what, known. What were, what were the indicators though? Because I mean, some of the accounts, like even President Obama's account in his memoir, I mean, I, when he says he had to make the call, he's like, so at the end of the day, it's a flip of the coin, right? That's exactly what he said. It's 50-50. He said, stop telling me numbers. Stop telling me percentages. You're making up numbers. This is a 50-50 call. He did. What, he said what, that. What, what were, it, it, from, from the intelligence perspective, I mean, what were the indicators of like, maybe he's here? Um, so yeah, I think, uh, between, um, Obama, Panetta and McRaven, I think they've done a good job of articulating, you know, what, what was being looked at. Right. So there, there was never a clear indicator that it was bin Laden. Like there were features of what they were seeing, you know, and I'm going to butcher this and, and any of my friends, or maybe they're not friends now that I'm, um, talking about this publicly, we'll find out later. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll be glad to correct me in some facet here, but, um, you know, the, the number, the family numbers, um, seemed to line up pretty well, which was always a pretty good um, way to know this. You know, I had a pretty specific uh, number of uh, family members that were probably with them. At, Excuse me. Um, and that matched up. Um, you know, there was all kinds of trigonometry going on to determine, you know, if, if the person pacing around the compound was 6'2 or 6'3 or however tall um, Bin Laden was, or if he was even that tall, if this was an exaggerated number uh, for his height. Um, but again, you know, never did that guy look up and, you know, give a full face review. Um, and so at this point, it was just the features that really, I think, made it um, clear that this was going to be something that w was going to go um, were all the ones that are well known now. Like the, the third floor having no windows was just super suspicious. That that it had a third floor at all was somewhat suspicious, but that the third floor was windowless. Um, you know, super interesting clues that on their own don't really mean much, but start to become interesting when you're just trying to add this up. Like, you know, a couple of the satellites were pointed towards Arab television, Arabic speaking television stations, right. Rather than Pashto or Urdu. Um, you know, the, the, the stories about kicking, you know, the neighbor kids kicking the soccer ball over the fence and not getting the soccer ball back. Um, you know, because they were just so security oriented behind there. Um, you know, there's there's a bunch of stories out there that are just not true about you know surveillance teams and you know um, safe houses and all kinds of other things that I think have just sort of grown up um, as myth over time. Like they were not taking the risk to put something too close to that and spooking um, you know whoever was there. But again, I remember I was excited. I, I, I'm bad. Like I, I don't learn lessons very well. I'm like, it's Bin Laden. Like, this is it. Let's do it. This is Bin Laden. Let's just get it over with. But I, the, the, the HVT one team, they were divided or I don't know if evenly divided, but there were at least a number of them. They're like, no, they've been tricked too many times um, mm -hmm. by Intel. Right. Well, what and about the, like, the story, the story about the doctor? Mm. So that was the longest pause I, in U.S. intelligence history. Uh, yeah, so I am going to 
I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna be in uh, a bit of a I'm gonna be a bit of an uh, I don't know obtuse. what the, you guys can enter what, what is it obtuse yeah I, I don't know what it was I was gonna be go a little harsher um, than that okay. I don't know where this one stands okay um, and um, I do not want to give any ammunition I, I'm I'm happy to um, go kind of crazy with um, some of the stories and stuff like that but I think there's there's actually a hazard there um, uh, and and I don't want to give any ammunition one way or another to to something that could cause um, someone who I think truly might still be in harm's way, and I don't know this story well enough to know. Um, so yeah, I, I should probably wave off um, okay. of that one. Um, but so but, the but, so the so the team is divided though about whether or not he's really there. Right. Yeah. So and this was fascinating, right? Because like they, they're just like they've been they've been duped, um, they've been tricked, and they really want facts, right? And so at this point, it was like figure it out use money, use resources, use creativity. Um, this is when I got to see some of the coolest stuff, um, you know, sort of come out of the agency, things that I'm de- I definitely should not repeat here because it's still very valid um, uh, techniques. But like when I was like, what was I going to see when I got into the agency? You know, when I'm thinking in 1998 or, you know, uh, September 11th in college or those guys getting killed in Tucker Gar, and I'm like, I'm really going to do this. Like this is what I was expecting to do. And finally I'm there and I'm doing it from Langley. Um, but there wasn't really anybody doing it in Abbottabad. Um, so it wasn't like you could get physically up against this. Um, and so then therefore, in my opinion, doing it at headquarters was the coolest place to do it because you had access to all what that was happening. And I got to watch how these decisions were made, which for me as a student sort of of leadership decisions, this was a fascinating time. Um, and so, yeah, you have this team, who's debating it. And you're right. You just talked about, you know, Obama saying it's not 50, 50 and the NCTC is like been asked to like review it from a red cell perspective. And that's where the percentages came out of. And they're like, we think it's 68%. I think it's 72. And and yeah, Obama was like, stop making up numbers. Um, <laughs> if you don't know, you don't know. Um, and so people who think like he ended up was like, uh, this is, you know, people are like, Oh, that was an easy call. Everybody would have sent the helicopters up in line. Absolutely not true. Like if it had been Zawahiri and they had launched that raid, like they, that the political reverberations for that, repercussions for that, would have been extraordinary because nobody would have um, uh, ordered that raid force in for Zawahiri. People couldn't even pronounce his name. They still don't know. They still didn't know when he when he died. However many months ago is now he died in Kabul. Like that was a non-incident, right? And it would have been there too. Like you sent an entire raid force across the border in Pakistan without their permission to get the number two of Al Qaeda. That would have been unacceptable. Right. You invaded uh, a foreign country. You did without telling them to yeah. get the number two. Right. And we had killed number three at that time like eleven times. Yeah. Um, right. Right. Um, I don't think people would have gone for it. And that was discussed. Like, what will happen if we go in and it's not him? And the idea was that this is going to be a bad day uh, right. for American policy. Right. Um, and so anybody who thinks that, that that wasn't a call that was that took some time, um, what wasn't consuming what was happening at that time. Right. Um, and usually I think they think all they knew was him. They didn't. They, nobody knew. They did not. So I, I have a story. Um, the, the day I think it was a Friday. So I got very lucky. Um as we got closer to the raid, um, I I, uh, I went to the head of the Pack Afghan Department, and people remember me as getting selected to do this job, and I don't usually disabuse them of that. But when I actually have to tell it myself, I have to tell people what actually happened. I went in, and I said, "Hey, Chief, um, I want to roll. I want to do something uh, in this. I don't want to keep sneaking into the meetings. Can you give me a job? Um, I don't care what it is. I'll take notes." Um, and he said, "I'll do you one better. Um, you're from here on out. Go give your, your duties um, to one of your team, and you're going to be my executive assistant until um, we get to the end of this thing." And I was like, "Yes." So I, I asked for that, and I was given that job. Um, and that's why I, I coach people: like, you're not going to get to do something cool unless you ask to do it. But sometimes you'll get called to do it, but most of the time, if you want to do it, just go ask. And if you're good enough to do it, or in this case, if you're just they know you're going to show up anyway, like I was, they might as well <laughs> right. give you some work to do. You, you may as well. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, you're already here. Right. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I, I love the way you talk about this in such like a casual manner, because for people who are kind of on, on the inside, it's a job. And it's true. It becomes a job. Right. But I mean, this was like there was intense secrecy around this. Like this was a big fucking deal as what was, what, it was Biden who said that was <laughs> after the fact. wasn't yeah. it? It was um, I mean, I think I don't remember the exact number was, but it was the most it, it, it stands up as one of the most secret things um, in the U.S. government history. I think the, the head of um, NSA's counterterrorism said it was the most secret thing that he was ever part of um, in his career. And coming from NSA, that's that's saying something. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't remember the numbers were, but like at one point it was it was a, it was a buy list um, readout. And I think it was like 78 or something like that um, across up until a point across the government, I think. Um, now, of course, they read people in, in in executive positions that they didn't put on the list. That always happens. Um, but for instance, like the ambassador to Pakistan didn't know till the raid day. Um, and um, that's a pretty big deal. And, um, uh, you, you mentioned uh, how you guys couldn't really even get on the same sheet of music about how to conduct the raid. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to the different options that were looked at in the run-up to yeah. this. Yeah, absolutely right. Um I mean, you know, uh, you guys have met some of the uh, agency's paramilitary guys uh, before. Uh, and when there was an option for them to potentially go and do this, of course, they were like, yes, um, we are going to do this thing. That's not what the uh, CIA's paramilitary department uh, is really designed to do. There, there can be people going to argue with me about this, too. <laughs> um, and, and there's one individual as well who, like, the could absolutely probably have done this, maybe even on his own, like had, had the skills. Like the, obviously that, that place is comprised of, um, composed of uh, a lot of uh, amazing people. But like you're going to bring together a bunch of guys, many of whom are like in their 50s, they stretch out and like, you know, take their medication <laughs> and then like get together in a helicopter and invade Pakistan. Like, uh, but anyway, I, I'm going to get my butt kicked um, for this for sure. This is like not my place to talk, but. No, no, time. I mean, because they're, they're like already retired JSOC operators and stuff, Correct. you know, they're, and they're, yeah. their job is to, you know, lead a paramilitary effort, uh, not not be uh, operators necessarily. Right. And I mean, for uh, by all means, like the, the, their pat, I mean, and then the stuff that they did in Afghanistan and, and other places yeah, around yeah. the world, um, again, uncommon valor. Um, at, at the time that this is, you know, happening, there are, are paramilitary officers in Afghanistan, um, you know, that are at the front lines of uh, combat in lots of um, areas. And, and, you know, despite the three times they've been shot in the leg, you know, they're still, um, you know, kicking down a door and, and in a room. Um, so they weren't supposed to, but, but getting it done. And, and there's no, no shit on them at all. I wouldn't have done it. I would have turned down the opportunity to do it. I still would turn it down right now. I would gladly hide behind uh, the armored Hilux if given the opportunity. So um, don't don't take the wrong thing from me. But it wasn't. It shouldn't have been them, um, in my opinion. And I was on the other side of this when it was like, okay, can we make this work all in time? And this was a secrecy thing, so it wasn't like they weren't being crazy. Like they were like, how many? What's the fewest number of people we can tell about this? Because they're going to bring in the military. It's much harder, right, um, right, to keep that secret, right? Even JSOC. Um, and so they ended up keeping JSOC out of it for a long time. Um, I don't think they ended up, I, I have it in my notes somewhere, but like, um, my cleared notes for those of you who are paying attention to the level <laughs> of detail that I'm presenting right now, it is pages and pages. Take it up with the PRB. If you think I'm overstepping my bounds here, I, I have a, uh, a bullet point, um, uh, amount of information on this, but, um, again, it's, it, there's nothing, there's no, nothing about this is going to, um, throw off uh, a future operation. Or if you want to debate that with me, you can, you can, uh, find me on Twitter. Um, <laughs> And, uh, yeah, so at this point it becomes clear that like, you know, this is going to need, we're going to need helicopters. Well, the big thing that came down was like, what happens if it goes wrong? Like, okay, you guys can probably do it, right? Like you get in, you, you, you do the battle rattle, um, and, and you probably do kill him. Like he ends up dying at this, but then all of a sudden now you've got the Pakistan military coming, right? right? Yeah. Um, and what do you do 
if that goes south, because we're not leaving. Obama already said nobody, we're, we're, if we decide to do this, nobody's being left in Pakistan under any circumstance. He's like, I don't care what the repercussions are. And so at that point, they're like, oh, God, we need a, you know, a, a 60 person QRF. Um, we need a combat air patrol. Um, we need all the things. And once now, that now it's getting clear, bigger and bigger. Right, right. Um, and of course, they didn't institute that until very close to the raid day. So, but right. then they call up uh, Admiral McRaven. They briefed him in. I've heard some good stories about him briefing his senior staff in and them not believing it um, or not quite believing it or wondering what happened. I think the, one of the very first briefs that happened to this was down at Bragg, like in a, in a front yard on like a Sunday or something like that. And uh, McCraven calls over one of his senior staff. He's like, hey, can you come in? And he's like, I really don't want to. I'm mowing the lawn. He's like, I'll come to you. And he goes over there and says, never going to guess. And he's like, oh, my God. He's like, okay, let me put the lumber away. Oh, I, I think that I think that was Tony Thomas, if I recall. Oh, you, okay. Did he, t- did he tell you this story? I, I, believe, I believe he's told this story publicly before. Okay, good. All right. I'm glad he did. That's exactly who it is. Um, <laughs> so hopefully you didn't dupe me into giving that one up because I, I know that's um, General Thomas's story. But that, that that's exactly who that uh, was. I, I, will, I would like to invite him on the show to tell the story himself. Uh, oh, well, I'll, uh, if I didn't just do him a disservice, I'll, I'll reinforce that in an email to him. Okay. Um, now at this point, in time, he's got some great stories that go along with this too, about what they were doing behind the scenes at that time. Sure. They're, they're, they're very funny at this point in time. Had it already been determined that it was going to be seal team six or was there, was there jockeying going on between, between, uh, Delta and seal team six? No, zero. Uh, SEAL Team 6 was the, um, the 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 element that was responsible for Afghanistan at that time. If, if any jockeying, I'm, I would be really surprised to learn if it did. Um, but I don't think there's any question at this point. They were the the, the special mission force um, on tap to do this. They knew the, the environment. Um, they already had all their resources forward. Um, it would have been ludicrous um, to swap it out. Um, despite, do I want to say this? Come on. I mean, I, well, I mean, you know, I, I come from the Army <laughs> Like, I, I have a, I have a special place in my heart, um, you know, for for Delta Force sure, and Isaac Delta sure. Force, um, and and um, yeah, I, I know operators from um, both sides. I mean, it's like comparing, you know, Olympic gold medalist sprinters at this point, right? Like, um, uh, and and but they have, they already had some amazing successes in operations like this, so it wouldn't have been hard to make that argument. Like, maybe we should um, pivot to Delta Force, but it would have been, I think, it would have been laughed out of the room. It's like, no, I mean, we got to. Uh, the assets were already force. there. Oh, forward for sure. Right. Yeah, they were right there. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so this was not a big shift. I mean, they brought in a team from outside theater because you know this was right the, because of uh, the the deployment cycle. Um, and this and the secrecy element, right? You needed to be able to. Could, could um, uh, were, were you a part of the? I mean, I know now we're talking about JSOC primarily, but um, allegedly they did their train up, their rehearsals at a you know an undisclosed. Uh, CIA facility that I won't mention here, just to not yeah. put you on the spot. But um, could could you I talk about like that? Could could you talk about that uh, that um kind of train up process at all? Yeah, I mean um, it's fairly well documented. I, I I'm definitely going to be speaking out of school to go in too much depth on it because you know I I I, I might have heard about this even third hand. Um, now I knew some of the the guys. I can't remember. Um, I don't remember where I put this, but uh, I I had the chance to know. Um, one of the now uh, more famous uh, people involved in this um, and that he was my beanbag partner um, out in theater about seven months um, before. And he's pretty good at beanbags. Um, so it was like Cornhole. Yeah. 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 Cornhole, yeah. So right. was, I, I got to play, got to play Cornhole tournament. And he was um, just coincidentally matched up with me. So uh, that I got, I got a chance to um, meet him before this. And then also he, he was, um, you know, we went down and talked to the teams in advance um, as we were sort of, um, gearing up and starting to pass information at a pretty heavy rate. Um, and so 
we got to go down and spend time with them. And yeah, it was just a lot of, I mean, we didn't, the line people in, in the agency didn't have much interaction um, with the operators once they started to get going. There's mm-hmm. a couple people who did, right, for obvious reasons. Um, but yeah, that didn't that didn't come up to me. What I, The people that I ended up seeing were, you know, sort of the JSOC elements that ended up posting up at um, CIA um, in the run up to the raid and, and more from the, the planning, the higher level uh, planning side, you know, what they were going to do, contingencies, um, you know, CIA ultimately had um, mission authority for this, and um, JSOC was seconded to the agency for this mission, which is just a cool feature of um, the intelligence community. I, I don't know how many people actually tracked that, but like this was not a military operation, right? It was, was a right. Title 50 CIA operation with JSOC moved over to the CIA for the operation. Right. Because of authorities control. between, like, right? They wanted to be able to potentially have deniability if you needed it. They wanted to run it as a covert um, action uh, all the way up until the point where they maybe could would not have to disclose it. Um, and so the only way to do that was to, to chalk JSOC over to um, CIA. And so, yeah. Uh, I, reported I think we, uh, we might have skipped over this part. Uh, I'd like to go back to, if you can, and, and, and maybe you can't, the jacket asked, like, uh, what were some of the options on the table? Oh, yeah. Sorry. So, no, I mean, yeah, okay. these have been... Yeah, these have been well worn. So, um, yeah, so there was a uh, the, the paramilitary option um, was on the table for a good long time, actually, uh, because they could, they could actually run out a lot of planning um, with those guys sort of thinking about it, and they wanted to keep it pretty well secret. So that was one um, that that turned into obviously J four uh, JSOC raid force um, action. But d- again, down to the eleventh hour, there was strong consideration being given to a drone strike, um, and then also just um, yeah, a straight up heavy bomber run. Um, and the drone strike was uh, – that was a, a pretty well um, debated um, decision. And there were people who went to bed the night before the raid still in favor of the drone strike. Wow. Um, over the raid. Sen- senior people. Mm-hmm. Senior people. Um, and the bombing raid, the bombing raid you know, um, was ruled out pretty quickly once they determined how many bombs they were going to have to drop to be certain that they got uh, bin Laden. And then at that point, there were people in the room that were like, you can send JSOC and do this and probably none of the innocent people, you can debate um, who was innocent and not innocent on that compound at that time. But like at this point, no one felt like any of the women and children needed to die in this. Like there, that was not a debate, right? In fact, it was Obama, I think, who ultimately said, if we can do this and demonstrate the, the power of America to go in and get this done, not shoot any women and children, not kill any women and children in this and get the guy we're going after, he wanted to be able to show the world um, that that was the class act that was happening. So the bombing raid was ruled out relatively quickly. Mm-hmm. It was kept there as sort of a, a thought exercise, but th- nobody raised their hand for that. The drone strike was, I mean, it, uh, you know, um, I mean, the CIA doesn't conduct drone strikes. I would, that's definitely not um, something that would ever happen um, inside a, a secret organization like that. But right. if they did, right. um, if they ever had conducted drone strikes, hypothetically, um, they would have been extremely good at it. Um, and it was a, a tool that would, would have been easy to roll out um, in this situation. But then you don't know it's Bin Laden. Right. Um, and what do you do then? Right. Um, How do you do the and, media? And you, right. Yeah. Yeah. You want this. The, 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 the United States of America deserves to know that, you know, uh, public enemy number one, um, you know, reached reached justice, you know, it was dealt justice. Um, and you can't – it just didn't sit well with the president. It didn't sit well with us. I was I was – Nobody was asking me. I didn't get a vote. They right. didn't. They didn't count my hand in the vote. But like I was, I was raid force um, from the second it became an option until um, uh, the day of, and and I didn't change all that. And ultimately, it came down to um, what's the confidence level 
that it has been live because now you're sending the raid force in and, and this is where the politics become. And if you did do a, a drone strike and it's our here, well, not great, but not, not super painful. The bombing also not great, but wouldn't have been extraordinarily painful. I mean, depending on exactly how many bombs they dropped and if they'd killed innocent Pakistanis or hit a, a military convoy driving by by accident or something like that, but that, that wasn't a feature. Um, but the raid force, that's just, you can just see um, the problem there. And so, um, yeah, one of the, this is a feature of the leadership that I tell uh, when I tell this story, you know, they looked around and said, does anybody, you know, who, who feels like this is just, this is Bin Laden. And one of the leaders in this chain um, who was a senior leader to us, but like in the government was not a senior leader, um, raised his hand and said, yeah, it's Bin Laden. It's Bin Laden. Um, and then came out of that meeting and told the rest of us that that's what he said. And we're like, no, we don't know. Nobody knows that. <laughs> and he's like, look, they needed somebody to say it. Um, they needed somebody to say it with like conviction. Right. Um, and frankly, that's, I'm, that's my job. Um, um, it couldn't have been said higher up. Like it, it just wouldn't happen and nobody could have said it lower. Um, so this landed on me. Um, and I was like, wow. And there's still people to this day that disagree with that decision, even though he, he ended up being right. They were like, right. no, you shouldn't have said that. We didn't have the uh, intelligence to support that. Um, and I, I was, I watched that and I've taken that. That's in my back pocket now when I give leadership The, the, the fear is that um, becomes another WMDs in Iraq kind of deal, right? Oh, you're done. Yeah, yeah you're done. You go in. Yeah, queers exactly. and, yeah. Yep. Everybody remembers that. Now, you know, does he, do you actually in, uh, incur a repercussion from that? Um, saying that and then it ends up not being him. Does anybody remember who, who was the, you know, the the senior person in CI, but not like the director of CI that said that probably not, but the rest of us do. Yeah. Um, and that, that's not something you want as a, as a person who, you know, um, is there, there, your entire, um, uh, you know, um, personal story is, is it, it, wound a, up. It's in, a zero right or hero moment for right. real. Oh yeah. <laughs> who, trust, who trusts your decisions after that? If you're the guy that made that call and it turns out not to be right. And, and you made the call, Afterwards, they would have been like, well, what, how, upon what information did you make that call? And you say, no, it was my, uh, yeah. just, it was a gut call. Yeah. <laughs> I felt like it needed to be said. Nobody yeah, else yeah. No, That doesn't play the same way right. uh, if it goes the other way. Uh, right. But, but was, it was clearly the right way to go. Right. Um, they needed that. Uh, the president needed that. Um, and and it, it was the right call. Uh, but I saw that. No, so I, I, we're going home Friday. Um, but I can back up too because I was in the very last um, planning meeting. It wasn't even a planning meeting at this point because the green light had already been given. So the Friday meeting with Panetta, um, yeah, I'll, I'll go from here since uh, chronology is y'all's um, sure. one of your sticks. But uh, uh, so <laughs> I'm as a as the EA at this point, the executive assistant at this point. Like I have a bunch of like super small d duties. Like anybody who's watching this right now, I'm like, is he putting himself in a leadership role? What's he doing? No, absolutely not. A towel boy. Um, uh, you know, bench player, whatever it was, like I was, you know, moving binders around. Yeah, you know, I, I make a joke that like you, lots of people remember these binders that were getting passed around at that point because it was like the binders that were getting passed out to people who were getting read in, and it was like the story from, you know, start to finish in this little binder. And they, they were kind of well known at that point. I'm like, hey, do you remember that binder that you got? Uh, and they're like, yeah, I remember that binder. I'm like, that was mine. Um, I did that. I cop, I printed out those sheets. I punched the three hole punches in them. I put them in those binders and I put the cover sheet in and then we delivered them around in boxes, all me. Um, and of course the whole story's in there. So I, I, this last day comes up and like, I am literally, I think going to be responsible for putting the placards on the chairs 
because it's like a fight, like who's going to sit where in the director's conference room, because it's not set up like a, a talk, right? It's just a conference room. And that's where they're going to run it out of the director's conference room. So we're going to like put the placards up there and who's going to sit where, and we're like figuring out like who, you know, who gets to sit closest to the director, all this right. stuff. Um, and we're going to have a meeting um, with the chief of staff of the agency at that point, who is um, Jeremy Bash. And that meeting is like, it's unclear when that's going to happen. It's like 10 o'clock or one o'clock. I can't remember what it was. And then at the same time, another meeting has come together and it's this last meeting with the director of the senior staff. Um, and the director is going to go downtown and have this last meeting with the president, you know? Um, and this is in the run up to the, um, um, oh my God, the, the event every year that the, the president often goes to the um, president Trump didn't go to. Uh, the correspondence the, dinner. Correct. Yeah. The correspondence dinner on Saturday. Yeah. Thank you. So he's gearing up. President Obama is gearing up for the correspondence dinner and then also consuming this last briefing. And so I'm going up and I'm with some other um, of the senior leaders and they're going up to have this meeting. And I'm going up to do the placards meeting. We get up there. We're walking down the seventh floor. I've been up there a bunch of times at this point, but like I'm always going through like the main door with the seal and like there's protocol and all that stuff. We don't hit that door. We hit like some unmarked door to the right that these guys are like totally um experience with now and i'm just sort of following them and like now we're back in the innards of like the senior staff rooms right there and i don't know where we are so i'm just following them following following them we go through another door and it's the side door to the director's office like the inner director's office i've never been through the side door Uh, and i follow them blindly through it and the door closes behind me and the meeting's already in progress panetta at the head deputy director at the other end and the senior staff around a table and a bunch of people on his couch and i'm like oh I am not supposed to be in this meeting. <laughs> I quickly run through the calculations. Like I'm the youngest person in there by a lot, like by a lot. Um, and I'm like, all right, I'm not going to risk this one. This is to be super embarrassing. So I turn around and I go back and the deputy chief of staff is standing at the door and she's like, Oh yeah. It's a compartmented, yeah, like, you know, classified operation. Like once you're she, in, you're not coming out. This, yeah, well, her thing is protocol. We're not opening the door again. Like right. that's a disruption in here. It's rude already that your bosses, um, you know, we're kind of late for this. Um, and she's like, take a seat. And I was like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I run over, I got a section of a like couch. I whip out my notebook. A, you jump up and do a heel click. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. And I, I get in there and, and then, and then this is like the senior staff, like breaking down, you know, okay, here's what we're going to tell the president. Like the first time I've ever seen this. Right. And I'm like diligently pretending to take notes. So like other ground. And at one point, the deputy director, Mike Morrell at this point, he looks, he's got a line of sight to me on the couch. Um, and this is the same people who have been in this room for like months now. Like nothing changes about these people. And he's like, and he leans over to the director of CTC who's sitting to his left and says loud enough that the whole room can say, who is that guy? Uh, and I'm like, this is, this is going to be really bad. And like, I've, I know the deputy, I know the director of CTC at this point somewhat well, but like he never seems to recognize, like I, I'm always like, how does he never recognize me? And so like, when I'm like, when he says, who is that guy to him? I'm like, oh geez. He turns around and he's like, oh, that's Aaron. Uh, he's good. Uh, I was like, he doesn't know who I am. <laughs> um, and then they actually, I got a job, I got a little job um, out of it too. They needed like a, a phone call into theater real quick. And like, um, they wanted it fast before like Panetta was going to go downtown. So um, yeah, the, the director of CTC leads over and goes, Aaron, go get so-and-so on the phone right away and ask them blah, blah, blah um, for the director leave. So anyway, I did that. Um, the, 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 a great Panetta story came out of this too, where like, they're talking about all of these high level things. I mean, like hugely consequential things like earth, earth moving things. And um, Panetta says, uh, I have a question. Everybody's like, Oh God. Okay, here we go. Um, is it, do we think it's, is it okay if I go to church on Sunday uh, before this, or do I need to come straight in uh, on Sunday and everybody, you know, like this, this tension releases in the room and everybody laughs. And I think it was maybe Jeremy or somebody said like, 
sir, if you wish to bring your congregation to the CIA on Sunday, um, you can probably go ahead and do the service here uh, in the senior staff room. Like these are the types of things you worried about. Like, am I going to throw off um, the day's events, the planning steps if I like, you know, go to because um, like, Sunday did, service? Didn't Obama go to the correspondence dinner just to make everything look normal? Because well, he, he was stepped- clear, but I mean, like, you know, Panetta could skip. Like nobody's following uh, Panetta's every movement. So like he was just worried about his team. He's like, where where do I need to be? Mm-hmm. And I don't want to do a thing that I would normally do if that's going to disrupt that. But you're right. Yeah, no, Obama couldn't skip that. Right. That would have been immediately um, uh, heightened uh, situation. It was that was unheard of to skip it at that point. Right. right. So, yeah, no, no, he couldn't. That was an interesting feature of that. And we, that that level obviously did not come down to us. Like, I, I, I'm fairly certain, like, I learned about the discussion surrounding that um, after the fact. I mean, it was clear to us why he was doing it at the time. But that they had such a heavy discussion on that was I only learned about um, after the fact. Um, and so anyway, just to round out that that sort of day, because that was uh, obviously a super consequential day, I go by this boss's desk again. Um, we're closing out for the day. It's, it's late. Um, and uh, I say, so what are you, you going to go do, chief? And he's like, I'm going to go home. I'm going to make a huge plate of spaghetti. I'm going to fill up a glass of wine all the way to the top. I'm going to drink it. I'm a pretty god that Bin Laden's in that cup. <laughs> okay. Uh, anyway, and the rest of it, I think, is pretty well known. Like you know, it's that that Sunday is that story's been told um, over and over again, and 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 you know, we were no different. And you know, sitting there and and you know, consuming it all as it sort of rolled out. Uh, and uh, the entire department at that point um, was in there. So that my my only leadership story that I had from that was. I made the case to read in um, the entire department that Friday. Um, I think it was Friday afternoon. It might have been Thursday. Um, because I was like, you can't not read these folks in. Like, this is not where this is leaking from at this point. Like, some people in Congress know. Like, it's it's going right. out in binders. And, like, you can't let 200 people that have been working in this department with all of their lives work or whatever it was at that point um, and let them go home on a Friday only to learn that the Bin Laden raid is on a Sunday and not tell them. Right. Um, and so, you know, and that was that was the role of like an executive assistant in a, in a department like that. You're thinking the bosses are all thinking about this high level thing. And, and, you know, I can zoom in there and be like, hey, let's let's tell the team um, and, and we can everybody come in. That's at this point. That's not going to be the deciding factor on this. And to their credit, they did it. Um, they so I, so it a- I, I have always had this uh, question about you brought up earlier that, you know, this was a, a Title 50 operation. There's, a, you know, the aspect of having deniability. Um how different would the bin Laden story have been if that helicopter had not gone down in a bad? How different would the story have? I no, it wouldn't have changed. I don't think um, you're, you're the, I think that the, the route you're going here is that we had to sort of cop to it because there was a black helicopter or, 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 or would we, if a helicopter had not, we gone would down? have, no, the plan was, uh, it was already rolled out. So yeah. So they they were going to, um, they were going to do the public, um, relations campaign, regardless of what the helicopter didn't have any bearing on on what the plan was after. So it, it, it was it. from the get go. We were going to announce we were in Abbottabad and we did this. Correct. Yeah, there was a. I mean, um, it was my first um, uh, introduction to the TikTok. Was it TikTok? Is that what they call it? Um, uh, now yeah. I'm, I'm being corrupted by the um, social media app. The now I don't even know. This it, is demonstrating that I do get this. 
it was the, like it the was, press tick. It, it, it was first announced. Uh, I don't know if you're talking about like wire reports, but I mean the story broke, so to speak, on Twitter. It was some local Pakistani who's like, "There's helicopters oh, yeah. over Abbottabad. What the hell?" Yeah, no, that was a that was a that was a baller moment at that point. No, like the I'm talking about like the the sheet of paper that like all the senior people have when they go to talk to the press. I think they call it the TikTok. Um, but now I can't I can't tell if the social media app has corrupted my vocabulary on that. Anyway, not important. Um, but that was the first time I they saw that and like that was all ready to go and they were going to deliver it and like you know um, Secretary Clinton was going to call so and so and and Bob Gates was going to call so and so and the Vice President was going to call this person and they were going to do that the second um, the helicopters were back in Afghan airspace. That was part of the plan from from you know whenever they made the decision that they were actually going to carry it out so it was never it was there was never any real deniability i mean even the deniability would have been if they had not conducted the raid but entered the airspace um and so had they gone in and you know um pakistani um yeah pakistani air force had um um challenged them and they couldn't get there that would have been denied um any anything short of um bullets leaving guns i think would have been denied Mm -hmm. what turnaround so you had mentioned earlier that obama really wanted the raid because he wanted to show this is the power of the United States. We want to pull bin Laden out of this and basically show this to the world. Was there consternation that Obama or that uh, bin Laden had been shot in the face and then buried at sea where, where we couldn't really give that right, proof right. to the world? Yeah, I don't think, I mean, I, it was definitely discussed. Um, I didn't, I wasn't part of any of those, um, discussions with any sort of substance, like all of those discussions I heard, um, secondhand and sort of like a brief back. Um, but, uh, they, they spent a lot of time deciding on what they were going to do with the body in order to prevent, you know, sort of a, a location for people to go to and worship a martyr. Um, and, and they came down on that one. Um, they truly, this is another example where like you threw him in the bottom of the ocean. Like, well, did anybody think this through? Oh my God. Like, can you, do you know how many scholars? I mean, it was like this whether or not they came down with the right decision, nobody can say that they didn't talk to all of the people <laughs> right. for the decision. Um, and so, yeah, I think, you know, I remember that time as being a much less um, suspicious time. I mean, there were still conspiracy theories and did he really die? Um, but like at that time, it was, I think people still took the government at their word. And I think people felt like if we say we got Bin Laden there, um, they're going to. Um, but I mean, it's also it. you got to sell the Arab world on it, which is a a, a society. Well, I mean, look, we're we're heading that direction too. But I mean, rife with conspiracy theory in, right. in the Arab world. Yeah, no, you're no, you're absolutely right. Um, and yeah, I'm not giving enough thought to this. Like, this would be one where I'd want to spend a little bit of time thinking about um, if if there was a, a solution that should have gone differently here, um, in order to maybe have staved off that that that, that conspiratorial thinking. Um, and right, it still comes up today. I can't remember the guy, um, the the pretty um, famous reporter who he just said something recently too. Maybe it was the Nord Stream pipeline. That yeah, you're talking about Seymour Hirsch. Said Hirsch. Is it? Is that it? Seymour Hirsch. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, he, he, yeah. 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 It's longer than that, I think, but um, that's him for sure. Um, yeah, he wrote this fairly long article about how Bin Laden wasn't killed in Jake. It's the same example. Where it's like, how would you have gotten all of these people? <laughs> to not um, come out and doing what I'm right now and like tell this little story from their little perspective um, about what exactly happened. Um, and I guess the, 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 the answer there would be, I was also duped, but like, right. of, like the way that I know it's true is, is quite descriptive, right? right? Like it wasn't like a, somebody came back and briefed me that it was definitely him. Like it was definitely him. Right. Um, and of course the, you know, the seals weren't going to not say that either. Um, so I think that was the, the feeling was like the, we're not going to need to prove it. 
through, you know, bringing back his body. Um, that, yeah. That's and really... He, I, frankly, they could have. He was still intact enough that... Well, you um, did bring back uh, his body. Well, I mean, it's just he was disposed of with, yeah. uh, un, rather unceremoniously. What, what's interesting, I actually have never heard that angle of the reason for the burial at sea, that it was to to disable or or to mitigate like a martyr's you know uh funeral but that makes a lot of sense yeah i mean i think jack just um hit it right there you know it was meant to be unceremonious right it was it was meant to be like a as much of a non-issue as they could possibly make it and then also yeah make, make it a spot a spot that no one could go to um and worship him and i think there there was also you know a little bit of a psychological um aspect to that too like this is done right it's it's over he's at the bottom of the ocean um you can't get further away unless we had launched him into space right um and you're right uh we uh, obviously they brought the body out when i was meaning bring the body back i was thinking like like back to the states back to the states or even in afghanistan and uh, leave it there and you know do an autopsy whatever you would do i I can't think of i would have to really put some thought into like what would have been the alternate option i'm sure they talked about that i'm guaranteed they had you know six coas um that they debated and ended up settling on that one. Um, and, and in hindsight, I would say even I can't, th- I don't think of a very, very negative thing that actually stuck around on that one. Even in the Arab world, I think most people at this point accept that that's what happened or, or, you know, if there is a conspiracy, it's not a sticky one that causes major right. um, heartburn there. The ones that stick around are like, did the Pakistanis know and, and all of that? And um, um, was there some kind of agreement with the Pakistanis to let us go in there and stuff like that? That's both of those aren't true. I, I'm absolutely convinced the Pakistanis did not know, um, and there was certainly no agreement. Um, that was a that was a daring um, little thing that they did there. And you're right, they nearly got hosed up when that curious individual on Twitter um, sort of went public public with it a little sooner than people were hoping. So what was, uh, I don't want to say fallout, but I mean, what was, what was the aftermath of all of this at CIA from your point of view? Um, I mean, the immediate aftermath was certainly, uh, celebratory. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was a, it was an interesting time to be there. It was, you know, you didn't exactly know when you were supposed to celebrate, right? You certainly the helicopter went down and that, I think all of us were like, well, that's the end of that. This is done. This is totally screwed um and to, to admiral craven's credit like it's just a cool customer i mean he came over to the radio and he's like we've had a minor i forget exactly exact words where he, he tells this story obviously super well but he's like we've had a i don't know if he tells this part but we've had a minor incident on the objective um it's not affecting the mission we're moving ahead as planned i mean there was a, it felt like it was probably four hours in between the helicopter hitting and him saying that but i think it was minutes not maybe mm-hmm. even a minute um and like unflappable it was just like yeah small problem Don't yeah i mean it. you definitely got to give credit to the the operators and the pilots uh on that operation that they flexed from that that uh that um accident that crash and just drove drove on and completed the yeah. mission and got out mm-hmm. of there and it caused a total um adjustment in their um raid plan too right like they they ended up um fraggling to uh, alternate movements on the objective which was like you know uh, any operator that's um, been on objective when things have gone wrong, of which I am not one of them. Um, but, but, but even in training, you know, like this, it, you, you train one way and maybe a second way. And by the time you're to the, you know, the tertiary way, um, you're just kind of making it up as you go along, but you're thinking, but damn it. Like now we're now the plans host. Um, and they had that happen, obviously. 
Um, and to the uninitiated observer, it looked like they still like, executed exactly the way right, they did. Right, right, um, right. it up, yeah. Right. Um, but yeah, then that, so once, but once that happened and, you know, they, they, they called Geronimo and there was like a little small celebration um, at that point, but not, not a, not a boisterous one by any means. Cause like that's obviously still a hazardous um, point in time. And I think that I've understood now from talking to people who are in different places, like it was much more stoic on the seventh floor in the conference where I was down uh, in the the department at this time and sort of like a secondary um, client command center is over doing it, but ops center, I guess is the best mm-hmm. way to look at it. Mm-hmm. Um, we weren't commanding anything, um, but uh, we were a little more boisterous down there. There's a lot more people. Um, I was at power eating carrots out of a, uh, vegetable tray, like stress eating, uh, my way through, um, bunch of vegetables. Um, and then, so then, okay, the little celebration there, they get back on the plane, the birds. Um, now there's concern that the Pakistani military has been, um, mobilized and, and, and in fact had been mobilized, but they didn't know like, they weren't designed to take off at night, which was fun to find out after the words. Um, and so they were, just couldn't figure out what the steps were going to be to get off the ground, luckily for us. Um, and then, yeah, the helicopters obviously take off. I can't remember what it was, a 34-minute return trip. And that was a very stressful period of time because at this point they were thinking, okay, what happens now if the, the Pakistanis do engage? Um, and we weren't briefed in and, or part of the decision tree on what they were going to do at that point. But obviously in hindsight, we know that they were going to be challenged by U.S. Air Force right? Um, if they did that. Um, and so that would have been an interesting event, um, obviously. Um, and they were told to not land. The helicopters were told you will not under any circumstances um, land in Pakistan if you if they try to force you down, which yeah. would have been a, obviously an event to be involved in, but it didn't happen. They crossed back over the border, and the second we got that phase line call, seals in Afghanistan, then it was at least in our in our little shop um, interruption that was hugs and crying and champagne being popped and um, yeah, it's the end well, of a, a chapter in American history. Oh yeah, I mean, end of a chapter in American history, and end of a chapter of me, my own personal mm-hmm. um, history. I remember thinking, like, what am I going to do now? Um, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like that's it. It's over. Yeah. 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 Uh, turns out we weren't done, but yeah, um, war on terror done. one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then yeah, Monday was was a cool day. Um, you know, Panetta came down and walked through the vaults um, and was giving out hugs and high fives and handshakes and. Um, I think you know the next day or something, uh, or very shortly after the president um, came up to CIA, and uh, yeah, it was it was a cool cool time to be there, by quite clearly. So, what was uh, you weren't quite done yet? Yeah. What what was the the next assignment for you? Yeah, so um, I ended up transitioning there and studying uh, digging back into Arabic um, for a period of time and, and really um, getting pretty decent at it. Um, then I, I uh, moved to back to the Middle East. Um, then I spent some time in the Arabian Peninsula, um, you know, continuing to take the CT fight um, to, you know, what the remnants were there. You know, a lot of people in, in Al-Qaeda decided that wasn't over. And, of course, ISIS at that point had started to really um, come out of the woodwork. And so all of a sudden we had a, a totally new um, enemy to fight, in this case more brutal and ruthless enemy and um you know where i was at that time was you know moderately safe place but you know suicide bombings and stuff started to happen there too um and it was unclear like you know now now it wasn't even we weren't even in war zones and and it was kind of like being in war zones all the time um at that period 
Um, and what, and what year was this roughly? This was 2013 to 2016. Okay. So yeah. what did, what did it look like working against, you know, AQ and this new ISIS where you were at that time? Cause like you said, it wasn't, you weren't in a war zone. You weren't responsible necessarily for like Afghanistan, but, but like the Arabian Peninsula, like that area was still very influential and hot. Right. Oh yeah. No. Yeah, absolutely. was. Um, yeah. So that turned into just more of the hard nosed targeting for which CI was, uh, pretty famous and, and really good at. Um, and that was the part that, um, you know, I, I was, I was good at, I, I liked doing that. I, I enjoyed the, um, the investigation sides of it and, and the, you know, the being on the hunt. Um, for folks who we knew were, you know, just always a few steps ahead of us and always sort of planning to do something pretty epic. You know, Al-Qaeda in the Arab Peninsula had um, a couple of famous uh, folks around that time, both before that time and, and after my time, in some cases just barely after my time. Um, Ibrahim al-Asiri was among them. He was um, known for making um, the bombs that um, are responsible for us still having to take our shoes off in the airport, which is a ridiculous thing that still <laughs> continues um anytime someone takes my shoes off and like so you, you have to take your shoes off maybe you don't know what's happening here but like this is important for security and i want to be like let me tell you <laughs> where this originates from yeah. uh and um, how ridiculous it is at this point yeah. It, it, yeah at this point uh they've gone beyond this but yeah. uh so there's that and Anwar Alaki, um you know was famous at the time at least in our circles uh, an american citizen um uh, but yemeni born um from the Awlaki tribe, which is a pretty famous tribe uh, in Yemen uh, and a huge tribe. Um, and uh, yeah, there, there was just a lot of that going on in that. There, there was a much different, and now, um, you know, Bin Laden's gone. So like the the pressures, both the pressures off, but also now the money is sort of changing and the focus is changing and ISIS is there. And so at least on the AQ side of things and the AQ in the Arabian Peninsula side of things, um, it wasn't the focus anymore, but I, I kind of, I thought I, I sort of enjoyed that because now, now you could, you could do your work without the pressure of people wanting to see what you were doing all the time. And that, that I, I existed in that environment, I think better than the others. So we're going to brag about you real quick and then ask you a question in 2015, you won the DCI language impact award. That's probably not an award that many people have heard about. Can you, can you tell us what it is and anything that you can tell us about what led into you winning that award? Yeah, um, uh, this is from one of my various uh, bios, and 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 I will be um, quite straightforward in, in saying that I put it on there, and I put it on there um, because I, I'm 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 proud of it. Uh, um, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm proud of a lot of stuff I did at CI, but I'm particularly proud of this one because it was it was related to the the Arabic that I put so much time into um, getting right, and and this reward, this is for impact when you're doing something operational in the foreign language. Um, and so people were like, man, your Arabic must be great. No, I mean, it's, it's, it was always decent, but there was, I don't think anyone ever called it great. I would constantly get made fun of because I would <laughs> blow through grammar, um, and choose more basic, uh, vocabulary and, and, and butcher, you know, what actually is a very beautiful language in Arabic, um, to get straight to the thing that I needed the fastest. Um, but it turned out that's, that's a good way to do it. Um, for this type of work, uh, I'm never going to be a UN translator, um, or translate, uh, uh, the, the beautiful literature that is um, Arabic poetry. Um, but if you need to say the word karbam in Arabic, uh, I'm at least as good as anyone. Right. Like right. Um, 
And so, yeah, I was proud of that because, yeah, I was able to have at that time what was the biggest success in CT um, with with a, a fantastic team. Um, working with a fantastic team, me getting to use my Arabic, a couple of other folks using um, their Arabic capabilities too. Unfortunately, it was an individual award. So like um, it should have definitely gone to the team um, for what we got. Um, and we did get a, a team award as well um, for this. But yeah, we had what was the um, the most consequential success of that um, little time period. Uh, I'll have to leave it um, to the the internet sleuths to now take the time period and, and do some heavy division, uh, maybe in Wikipedia land to figure out what was done there. But, um, it was certainly not of the bin Laden. I remember when I had to like type up for the, uh, the team uh, award, I was, you know, sort of trying to articulate, well, this is the most important thing that happened, um, since bin Laden. And my boss at that time was like, you don't say that. That right. sounds obnoxious. Right. Um, I was like, okay, fine. Um, but it is, but it was um, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, yeah. So that that was a that was a good that was an interesting time. Uh, it was a good time. Like it's probably people who uh, I don't think we have this problem with your listeners. Um, but I, I sometimes caution myself or stop myself when I'm like, that was a good time. They're like, you just talked about car bombs, and I think you're talking about maybe eliminating someone. And like you're saying, good time. But like if the, if you're CIA fighting CT at this time, like um, this is what you you came to do. I know. Right? I, I I did an interview recently. Uh, and, uh, I was talking about, you know, some terrorists we killed in Iraq back in the old days in, in 05. And I was laughing about it. And somebody in the comments is like, this guy's a textbook psychopath laughing about killing people straight out of DSM four. Yeah. He should be diagnosed. It's like, like we were talking about earlier, it's, it's your job and it becomes a job. And Hey, he yeah. was a terrorist. It, it's also I was a soldier you're doing what you're doing we, because you want because we we both show up purpose. on the battlefield and I mean someone's going home in a body bag. Yeah. It's not Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and at that point you're you're talking about like the Zarqawi era, which is like one of the most brutal right time periods in all of this. I mean, ISIS did end up trumping him in brutality, um, but like ISIS grew out of Zarqawi in that 050506 right, period. Um and like yeah, um celebrating that guy's uh, demise anybody who can't get on board with uh, maybe maybe celebrating demise is not everybody's um cup of tea but like um choose a choose a better word there but like being totally okay um that that guy uh was not allowed to roam around and and chop people's heads off anymore um i think yeah. that's, that's okay thing. i would be say i would say celebrating demise is is appropriate but yeah, I mean, but maybe I, I'm a yeah. textbook I mean, psychopath I, too. I don't, I, know. I, I don't celebrate people's deaths. Like I, I wasn't jumping up and down celebrating when when Bin Laden died. But I agree with the decision, right? <laughs> you know, fuck yeah, that, fuck that dude. Yeah, no, I think you're right. Like, um, yeah, celebrating maybe isn't quite the right word, but like, be, yeah, being okay that it happened is, I think, I think is is fine. I, I find myself in this spot right now because I, I, you know, I talk to varying degrees of audiences, um, right now, and you sort of got to, you know. I can own my points if I want to and turn off the audience and not and uh, own my, these smaller points. Right. Um, or I can, you know, land the bigger ones, which I think are um, more important in, in balancing turning off one's audience and, and getting the point that I want to um, right. land home. is this weird, delicate balance. So I, I'm learning it um, right now as I do it, but I, I maybe catch myself a little too often. Yeah. Yeah, I just don't like making it like an emotional thing. Like we shouldn't kill people because we're like upset. Like you kill them because there's a necessity for because them. they're assholes. And no, no, oxygen you, because they're a national security threat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think in this case where it's you know the, yeah there's there's myriad examples of 
this person is yeah. planning to do yeah, something yeah. No, I agree. really horrible, right? We know it. It's a fact. Like this is not they, – they've said it in some cases publicly. I'm going to do this thing. Um, and, and now you have a couple of options to deal with that. And in some cases, um, those options, they're, they're not pleasant necessarily. Um, but, yeah. So – Yemen, Saudi Arabia, and now you're also kind of witnessing the birth of ISIS across the border. Mm -hmm. Who said Saudi Arabia? But um, anyway, yeah. Uh, the Arabian Peninsula. <laughs> no, no. Um, yeah, so that uh, moved from there to um, Eastern Europe uh, and, and more of the same, um, counterterrorism uh, and, and a little bit of a, a leadership job um, there too, um, which was, was, was cool uh, for me. And yeah, the Eastern Europeans are just fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, just, uh, I mean, there's a, there's a little bit of a, maybe of a hierarchy uh, amongst them uh, to a degree from, from the perspective of how, how great they are as a, as a partner and an ally um, to the United States. But overall, the, the Eastern Europeans are just um, really, really stellar um, at, at being good partners. Um, and some of my friends, um, specifically you know, the, some of my Romanian friends are just like, amazing human beings. I would constantly say like, um, that they're better Americans than some of the Americans <laughs> that I know. Um, and, uh, yeah, that, that was great, but less excitement, um, for sure, as is often the case for some of those, a welcome tour, but, um, less excitement and, um, but, but yeah, still, still pretty fascinating. It was, it was interesting to work with the, a lot of the Europeans and the European counterterrorism elements there are, are, we had a hard job at that time because this is when the lone wolf's, uh, threat was at its height. In, in Europe, and a lot of them are coming up from Syria and Iraq um, through Eastern Europe, actually, and then getting uh, everybody remembers this in, in Belgium and Brussels and uh -huh. um, France, and um, uh, I'm, I'm sure I'm forgetting some spots right now. My 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 history on these things, mm -hmm. I, I seem to leave it behind um, when I leave these places, but I know it intimately at the time, and then and then I decide to I guess not preserve it, at least in for instant recall. But so that that was an interesting time, a much harder time, like Lone Wolf terrorism that, that it's not a bigger thing even still to this day is we're just very lucky because it's not easy to stop so when you were in eastern europe because normally when you think of cia in eastern europe you're, you're thinking about you know countering the russians and and the cold war and post-cold war sort of mentality of the spy versus spy how was it working more in a ct fashion look you know going after like isis and and whatnot um were you still working sort of the traditional cases or was there a firm division in that area between like the anti or the, the counter Russian effort and and probably counter Chinese effort, even though it was, you know, Eastern Europe versus yeah, no, I the think, CT? Yeah, no, um, you know, for uh, agency officers overseas in, in foreign posts, it's almost always like an all hands on deck towards whatever important thing is happening um, okay. at that time. I mean, you have some, you know, you're given delineations. You, you should focus on this day to day and because we need some, you know, we need 40% on that and 30% on that and uh, the remainder on this. Um, and so, you know, keep up on that. But like, yeah, if something happens um, and, and you need, you know, three people from the office to go do a Russian thing, even though they're normally CT people, like the agency is extremely good at that type of, those type of pivots. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, you're right. Um, and this time, you know, this is, uh, you know, um, Crimea uh, and Georgia have already, or, or earlier versions of Crimea and Georgia have already happened, you mm -hmm. know, so that's a little bit of a heated area, but not, not crazy at that time. Um, and certainly 
the the Russians are there and in, in in a, to a great degree, they see that as their backyard. Um, and that's, yeah, you can't go to Eastern Europe and not, uh, as a CIA officer and not spend your time thinking about, um, the Russians, it's not possible. Um, but not much in addition to that at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, that's changed a little bit, but we, uh, before the, I want to talk about East Asia. Um, but uh, I'm going to hit you with just a couple of questions from our, uh, our users, our viewers. Um, Michael asks, what was the typical day like in Ranger Battalion? And what was the typical day like as a CIA officer? Which was better, your best day as a ranger or your best day as a spook? P.S. Guys, Verizon Fiber is a worthy upgrade from Comcast <laughs> in this city. Michael, we agree, <laughs> and we will be upgrading. We will be, we will be, voting with our dollars. Yeah, um, I mean, uh, I, I, uh, they're not watching live, so I think he probably would have recognized that that question, um, that at least the latter half of that question, was an easy answer. Um, uh, hands down, no question. Obviously, that 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 Sunday, um, uh, May first, two thousand eleven, mm-hmm. uh, stands out e- easily. There's that's no question, and that was not anywhere near a standard day. First of all, it was a Sunday. Um, and, yeah. Second of all, it was you know one of the most consequential days in 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 history. Um, so just somewhat sheer luck, and then it's been some, it's some measure of luck that landed me there, and then some measure of persistence, and that seems to be the equation that's worked out for me um, way more often than not. Um, and sometimes I actually actively tried this is across my life actively tried to make the wrong decision and and fate has brought me to the right one (laughs) by by accident or by um design that wasn't my own at least um so but yeah typical day there's no typical day um in ci really um i mean if you really boil it down to the most typical day right um nobody would want to hear it it'd be a horrible story because it's like you wake up you go in you read some stuff um, you read email, unfortunately, you, you read some, you know, of the regular traffic, you sort of consume something that happened, you know, during the time period when you were asleep or not at work, especially if it's relevant to you. Um, and then you're probably spending your day writing something about something you did. Um, like this is one of the things I tell the people who are thinking about a career in the CIA, cause you have to make, you have to be ready for this. Otherwise you can be a severely disappointed person. Like most of being a CIA case officer is writing, um, you know, the, the, the cool stuff happens, but it's like less than 5% of the time. Now the, that, that stuff does make up for it. It definitely does. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to call them CIA days. Uh, and you would know it when you're happening. Maybe sometimes you'd know it after it, or you'd know it when you're in it and you'd be like, wow, okay, this is CIA day today. Um, you know, we're doing something cool. We're doing something you couldn't do. Otherwise, you know, maybe we're breaking somebody else's law or something, or, you know, we're going across a border. We're not supposed to be going across or like that, but like, that's like less than 5%. It definitely makes up for the other 95% of writing. Um, but like, I don't like, I like writing, but I don't like writing about a thing that's already happened. I'm like, well, that's done. Why do we got to write it up? Right. Um, uh, but you, you have to, it's a, it's a nature of the way that business works. Um, and it is actually really important um, documenting all that stuff to both preserve it for the record, but also to, um, you know, have, have a, uh, something to go back to and, and know what happened before. So, so you don't make bad decisions um, based on faulty information that's, in the past. And obviously agencies has a, an unfortunate history with bad decisions when things were not documented. Um, they're not as many as people think compared to the successes, but of course they're the only ones that we know about. Um, uh, Tom, uh, this is a little confusing. He asks, were the CIA duties what you were hoping for or PSD and case officer security, et cetera? Maybe he was asking about your, you know, potentially becoming a paramilitary guy versus a case officer. I think he, pretty much answered that i'm not totally clear on that on the question though uh K- 
Caleb, uh, Caleb asked what selection was like for the agency. I think you answered that one as well. Yeah, I mean, there's a little bit there, like, you know, selection for the agency is actually pretty um, intense, but it's not selection, you know, like a military selection, you know, where I do, I do a long walk for 30 days or, you know, um, ranger selection, which is less like selection and more like, do you really want to do this or not? <laughs> um, and do you also have the aptitude to do it? It's changed now, I guess, um, to a certain degree to be a little bit more like selection, but um, selection for the agency is like lots of tests, lots of psyche valves, interviews, um, you know background investigations it's a long um it is a selection process and, it, and they definitely are selective um and uh it, it's not like any it's not like anything else um that i had done uh and, and i think it does work um to a large extent like you, you they they pigeonhole a lot of people into certain jobs but you look around and for the most part i think most of us agree like oh yeah they got this they got this right and they got that that person seems like they should be over there and every once in a while it's not right and usually they'll let people shuffle around um, but yeah, the process does seem to work. At least it worked for the past. Like things are changing rapidly now and so, technology is changing rapidly now. And, um, you know, you might need someone who has a uh, considerable, you not might, you definitely need someone who has considerably more tech acumen than you needed to have, uh, 20 years ago to be a case officer, right? You didn't need to really have anything then, but pretty good judgment and some cultural knowledge and, um, some luck. And, and yeah. now you need to know how to, you know, you need to know what an ISP is and, you know, what, how and encryption works and, um, you know, what is your signal signature in certain places in the world when you're trying to do a thing. And that, that's just not, it's not an easy thing to teach because there's not really an expertise on it right now. We're learning it as we go. During, you know, during the war and, and just, just in general, the way technology has been evolving, have you been surprised? Because you said like, when you were planning for the Bin Laden stuff or when you were seeing what they were pulling and the things that were pulling, have you, what have you thought about like the technological leaps that the agency has made over time since you first got in? Yeah. So, um, that's tricky because, um, some of the coolest features of this are also the features that, um, are, are best left Sure. Um, unsaid um, right now is no doubt, you know, there, but like, yeah, I, I mean, it's been amazing the amount um, that's transpired from a technological standpoint. I mean, some of it uh, we've learned about after it's already happened, um, but, uh, and, and we didn't know it was a risk, but it, w it had already become a risk, but now, now we're watching this um, bubble up as, as they happen. Um, and so, you know, um, I'm a big, I was a big, um, uh, risk identifier for what is being termed ubiquitous technical surveillance. I don't know if that's come up on your show yet, but it's a, it's a, it's a clunky government term sort of meaning all of the possible technologies out there that can, um, you know, uncover things that were previously very difficult to uncover. So, you know, uh, cell phones are the easiest example to use, right? You might, my, my cell phone, is just a hazard to all kinds of things. If I turn it off, it's a problem. If I leave it on, it's a problem. If I take it to a thing, it's a problem. If I leave it behind, it's a problem. It's a problem no matter what. Mm -hmm. um, and for a long time, people are like, well, let's not use cell phones. Well, that's not an answer because everybody uses cell phones and you're trying not to stand out and it stands out if you don't right. use a cell phone. Right. Or you hear people when they talk about telematics, right? Um, telematics is really tough because you almost all cars now have some measure of telematics, meaning they're tracked by some entity. There's less of a privacy issue there. 
Um, and so no matter what, same thing you do with a car, am I going to leave a car behind? Am I going to take it with me? It's, I normally drive my car. So then therefore what happens when I'm not driving my car? I look not normal. Um, and I'm always trying to look normal. And you'll hear someone say, well, I'm never getting rid of my 1986 Bronco. Um, well, who drives a 1986 Bronco abroad that works at an embassy? Nobody. Right. Um, and so, yeah, okay. Now you're not tracked, but you're obviously the person trying not to be tracked and guess who then gets tracked more when that happens. Right. Um, and so this is a real tricky period of time. Um, and there's no great solutions to it. And unfortunately we have an adversary that is, uh, the people's Republic of China and the communist party of China, um, that is really doing this particularly well compared to us. And, right. and, and, and frankly, we don't want to be as a country very good at this because what they're doing is just steamrolling over privacy rights and individual rights in a way that I don't think anybody in this country would be comfortable with from any um, uh, side of the spectrum. Some more comfortable with than others maybe and, and some less depending on where you are, but no one could possibly like what's happening um, in China because of the Chinese government right, right. now. Um, and I am careful by design in separating out um, the people of China here from the Chinese government because like not it's a good idea to do just from a, a cultural standpoint anyways, but it also does a disservice to look at the, at the problem beyond the government because it really is the government. And right. if you don't focus on the government, um, it becomes a much harder problem to deal with if you think it's 1.4 billion people and, and, and um, instead of the, you know, whatever thousands that are running the Communist Party. Um, and yeah, what, what the Communist Party is doing both inside China and now outside of China is amazing what they're able to do from a tracking, locating and data collection standpoint. I mean, speaking of which, uh, you, the tail end of your career at the agency, you had a East Asia assignment and I, I'd love to hear about that. Yep. So, um, yeah, that, that was a pivot for me. I was finally like, okay, got to try something slightly different here. Uh, and it was more than slightly different. So yeah, my last job was as the deputy chief of operations in Southeast Asia, Japan, uh, department. And, you know, that's basically, um, being responsible for um, oversight to the operations for almost everything but China. There's a couple of other examples that are not that included, but yeah, that was a fascinating job. Um, it was also about the time when I said, okay, I got to make a shift to the private sector because I'm, I'm really having trouble getting a lot of the things done that I would want to do here that I think I could do if I was in the private sector and potentially maybe do better. And I also wanted to try my hand at some things that I was never going to be able to do inside government before I got too old. Um, but while I was there, yeah, I really got to see what our allies were like in that region, who some of our previous allies were, and now we're no longer our allies. You know, um, the government in Cambodia is a pretty good example of this, a really close partner for a long, long time and, and no more. They're kind um, of fucking close partner. up in the region. Yeah. Oh, it's a great example of like what not to do, um, from a, a partnership standpoint in, in pivoting from one partner to another. Now, maybe they'll survive it by, um, um, sidling up to China, but they would have been better off, I think, trying to ride the middle ground for much longer because right now they've they've chosen a horse and, and they can't get off of it. They can't change again. But there's other countries that are kind of riding this line a little better. Um, but yeah, I learned a lot there. Uh, and I, I, I definitely got to see what uh, how that place, how agency functioned a little differently um, compared to CT. And I also got to see that, yeah, the threat that is the People's Republic of China is, I mean, there's no comparison to CT. Right. Like we would survive CT if we decided never to fight it. Like it would have been horrible. I'm sure there would have been lots of tragedies, but the country would not have imploded because of it. Um, or the world would not have changed 
super dramatically because of it. But but that the the government of China is is a totally different thing. What would can you kind of walk us through sort of the transition that Cambodia made, the mistakes that we made, the mistakes that they made, and, and where they ended up? Yeah. So I mean, um, Cambodia. Um, I mean, I think if if it, the mistake that they're making right now is is caving to you know what the what it what ultimately um, the Chinese government's pressure to force them to essentially be a jumping off point for um, Chinese military operations there. You know, this is a a fairly well known example. They they have a base there, Reem Naval Base. Uh, fairly well example to people who are following this closely. They have a Reem, the Reem Naval Base there was up until very recently um, a place where the U.S. Navy was located um, as part of our joint operations with the Cambodians. And then almost overnight, um, the Cambodians kicked out the U.S. Navy and allowed the Chinese Navy to take it over. Um, and that's a obviously a very strategic and consequential decision from just both a regional standpoint and, and what you do when you're you know, trying to balance power in a region and trying to have allies in, you know, geographically significant places. And then all of a sudden, um, you know, a geographically significant position is flipped <laughs> and in the direction away from, you know, where we would want it to be. Um, I think that's that's significant. I think the Cambodians are short-sighted in that if this thing gets to the point where it gets hot, I'm not so certain that the Chinese military is going to come to their defense and there's going to be green incentive for us to bring down the hammer on the Cambodians and um, potentially take that back that space. I don't think it'll become to a hot war in Cambodia by any means, but like from a political standpoint, we've sort of decided to cede that ground without really doing anything consequential. But if things really amped up, I mean, we, I think we would try to, you know, extract a, a cost out of the Cambodians on that, or at least try to balance it back the other direction and, um, that's not good for anybody in Southeast Asia right now. What What do you make of our efforts in the United States, not not internationally, but just here in the U.S. at combating Chinese espionage, Chinese influence? Um, I mean, I know that one of the primary providers, DJI Drones, is a Chinese-held company, and almost all of our law enforcement entities use their drones. Like... Is there a way to stop them that our politicians will get on board with or? So, yeah, um, I mean, it, I wish it was just drones. We'd be in great shape if that was the case. Um, frankly, um, the especially the like the the um, technocratic elements of the U.S. government, you know, the people who don't move along with administrations, um, I think are doing a pretty good job at this right now. Like you're seeing a lot of pivots happening. You're seeing a lot of pressure going back the other direction. Um, you're seeing a lot of monetary and trade um, restrictions being put into place. You obviously are probably tracking the CHIPS Act and what we're trying to do there. Now, none of these things are enough on its own, but um, they're certainly all moves in the right direction. This is a delicate balance, too, because like you, you disrupt you know, global trade sometimes at your own peril, right? Mm -hmm. You don't want to cut off your nose to spite your face. So this is a tricky thing. People are like, oh, just you know, cut them off. Like... Um, you know, enact even rougher trade um, uh, barriers. You know, this is the world economy is a delicate balance, and I am definitely not an expert to speak on any of this. But I do understand that, like making big decisions 
um, is not something really that governments are, uh, the American government has ever proven really good at. Mm-hmm. Um, no government really is good at. So better to make small decisions and sort of read the tea leaves as you go. And I do think they're doing that pretty well. Um, I'm not an expert in this by any means. So there are lots of people who are going to jump um, in here and and um, speak to this more more effectively than I am. But I will say what I, what I probably can argue uh, I'm an expert at is uh, what the the Chinese government specifically is arraying against us from uh, a hazard, right? And DJI drones are a pretty decent example from the perspective of like what, what like a, a very easy to understand um, collection risk is. But the biggest um, shopping application in the United States now is Timu. Timu has overtaken Amazon, Walmart, and another shopping application. I'm going to butcher the, the pronunciation of here. Shein. Shein. Um, it looks like Shine, um, but I'm told it's pronounced Shein. Shein. Um, was until recently the biggest um, uh, um, shopping application in the United States until Timu beat it out last August. Timu had three Super Bowl uh, commercials, and both of those, Shein and Timu, are owned, are 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 Chinese owned. Um, they're ahead of Amazon and Walmart. Um, those are data collecting machines, right? Uh, in the United States, they're ahead of TikTok um, in what they're doing. And when you can know this much information about an entire population at will in a second, and you've already proven that you're exceptionally good at knowing what populations are doing and then manipulating them, um, that's a hazard. And these companies, based on the law, the way the laws are written in China, they have to give up this information uh, mm-hmm. to the Chinese government if asked. Well, like it's, it's, not, it's not even duty. that they have it give it, have to give it up. Inside the offices of those companies is like a PLA commissar yeah uh that that a political office inside the larger corporations right yeah it's not a, it's not a far it's not a far distance for them to consume yeah, it's right. not like in america where they have to like send a warrant to the company to get the information or even like we've seen some recently where there's some sort of like back and forth going on it's like no there's an office of this communist party inside this corporation that just takes what they want because well, it's their and, company and even i mean even as insidious as things like uh, you know, Timu and TikTok and these things are, there are more, even more insidious efforts in the sense of the clinics that collect genetic information for, you know, mothers-to-be all being, you know, mostly being Chinese-owned or at least selling all the the DNA and, and all the data to the Chinese. It, it, how, how do we, you know, I mean, because there's the idea that there could be designer designer weapons created for somebody's specific DNA if they wanted to eliminate somebody with no trace. Like, yeah. Um, yeah. The, the, the stuff of that used to be purely um, science fiction, you know, we're obviously watching um, come straight into reality. Uh, yeah. Genetically engineering, a bioweapon that's literally designed for a single person, but it's, it's, it's quite clearly very possible um, at this point. And yeah, the, the, the the DNA of most Americans right now is either known directly um, or indirectly by one or two degrees, which is effectively still knowing it, mm-hmm. um, right? Uh, this has been widely reported. Um, and yeah, the, the, the Chinese ownership uh, roles in a lot of these companies, 23andMe, um, is, is, there's a reason for it. And this is also where it becomes really tricky, right? Because um, you, you, again, uh, xenophobia is, is unequivocally bad for a whole host of reasons, but it's also bad from the standpoint of if you turn, you could, there's, there's good reason for the 1.4 billion 
Chinese to sort of be upset with the Chinese Communist Party um, right now, right? Like, or, or certainly huge swaths of them, right? Their, the economy is not um, ticking away at a rate that it once was. Obviously, COVID, the COVID policy that's just now been reduced was absolutely abysmal policy. And then the, re- the way they reduced it was also really bad. There's a lot of reasons um, for the Chinese people to be upset. The last thing we want to do um, is somehow reduce that um, natural um, ally uh, to us by overreacting, right? right. Um, I'm 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 a constant um, supporter of subtleties in foreign policy and also subtleties in in, in you know, the arts beyond foreign policy. Um, and this is where it becomes tricky because it is such an enormous problem right now. Like you, everywhere you look, um, data or IP or critical technologies are either being siphoned off or or taken right out the front door. In some cases, most of this is going right out the front door. Like Timu is not stealing Americans' data. Like Americans are giving Timu their data for free. Right. Um, same with TikTok, right? And then, and then you hear examples like you almost just brought around one um, a second ago where people are like, well, you know, um, yeah, but like Facebook's doing the same thing as TikTok. The difference is, despite the Twitter files, it is remarkably hard for the United States government to go to TikTok and get anything but the most narrow of data release. And it's usually based on a subpoena um, or a warrant. And anyone who thinks that there's like a bulk data collection happening by the NSA, even if you look back to some of the NSA programs where there was, you know, some bulk collection um, around um, metadata, metadata, thank you, you saved me metadata, like, this is usually someone who vastly understands how that works, right? No one in the intelligence community is sort of sitting at Twitter. Uh, or Facebook and consuming this stuff raw off the cutting room floor and then making decisions about Americans. It just doesn't happen. Frankly, it would probably be better if it happened slightly more, <laughs> right? Um, it would be in the American interest if we could use those tools slightly more um, than we currently um, do, but mostly it's not happening. But the, the difference is on the other side of things that you're right. There's 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 a minder sitting right in that TikTok space that doesn't have to ask at all. Right. Um, they could just take or, or hook up the pipe and, and API right. their way um, to insights. Right. And they're taking it. And the, the difference between data on Facebook, which is face data that you give Facebook, and an app like TikTok is escaping the app and it's taking it from your phone. Like it's taking it from like general. It's taking it about you in general, you know, in addition to what you give to TikTok. Correct. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and, and and a lot's un, unknown about that too. It depends on the phone model. It depends on the permission sets. Yeah, There's certainly some nefarious things that are also happening there, and um, it's not well understood, really, so, by almost anyone. Aaron, uh, tell us about you know you you left the agency, and what have you been doing since? Uh, what what was the next step for you? Yeah, so um, we kind of got into it here a little bit. So mm-hmm. um, a few things um, started a nonprofit, uh, the twenty four thirty group. And the mission of that nonprofit is to do much of what we were just um, discussing right now, bringing uh, forward knowledge on a lot of these threats, specifically from adversary nation states. So, you know, trying to identify um, how the Chinese government or Chinese companies are stealing intellectual property and exposing that so that, um, you know, companies who are less aware of how this is happening have a chance to learn more about that, helping to build up mitigations and, and tools to defend against that IP theft. Also helping to defend some of our critical technologies that we will need moving forward if, if you know, certainly if this goes to some kind of a shooting conflict, but even short of that, and I think we will probably stay short of that for quite some time, 
Um, this is going to be a battle in the quiet spaces and we need, we're going to need those critical technologies to be able to, to conduct those battles. Um, and if we want to keep it in the quiet space, it's going to be critical technologies that keep it there. So those um, critical technologies are under threat right now. And we can actually get a better understanding of what those threats are from the open source environment, I think, in many cases. And so the nonprofit has decided to take this on. And um, when we have the opportunities to expose what's happening here and, and, and then offer some mitigations to folks, we're doing that. And that that's, dovetails completely with what I was doing um, inside the agency. And then we're also, uh, I am personally advising a number of large, both technology companies and just large corporations uh, on how to work within this new threat space and, and how can they, you know, if they're a startup that's building a critical technology, how can they, um, you know, build a federal sub and still protect their IP, but maybe hire a really smart um, Chinese person who's gone to a great university to learn AI and is the smartest person on this piece, this feature of AI, and they absolutely need to have them if we're going to win the AI race or whatever AI race they're in. How can you, you know, um, make use of that person's knowledge and, and potentially very honest um, desire to work for your company, but not hazard your IP at the same time. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of advising um, going into that. And that's a space that's really interesting. Nope. And then finally, I just, I do a lot of speaking um, and uh, trying to, you know, turn these stories into, you know, valuable um, engagements with companies and, and groups to, you know, uh, how do you, take something like um, a coast attack and and bring lessons out of it from a risk perspective and use those um, lessons about risk and risk calculation to make better decisions in your your, your own company or your own uh, life. And and at, frankly, this last one is the one that I, I think I enjoy the most. Um, it's the one that unfortunately I do the least um, right now. I'd like to do it more, um, but it's a hard market to break into. Uh, and um, it's it's not one for which I have a long, long skill set, but but it's growing. And where can people like find you and find your services if they're interested in, in hiring your company? Yeah, so um, if, if they really enjoyed the the conversation we just had about um, the threats coming from nation states, you know, twenty four thirty group dot org, um, will bring them to that website, and and that one's fairly well explained there. It's it's new, so you know, there's not a donate button um, just yet, but there will be soon. Um, and we're still trying to figure out exactly where we're going to fit into the nonprofit space, but if they want to learn about that and they want to interact with that. There's, there's ways to contact us there. Um, if they, you know, if they want to hear me come, uh, speak about risk and resiliency or, you know, leadership when you need it most, uh, and, and how to have a more, uh, how to encourage risk without overstepping and causing, you know, actual hazard, then, um, they can go to undersimplified.org. Um, and, uh, you know, have a speaking page there and, and a way to get in contact with me there. And what about social media? If they just love under simplified, yeah, under simplified gets you to, um, the, the various places I'm on social media. I've definitely gone and, and nailed the, um, the search engine optimization on Google. So I think now if you put under simplified in, um, you mostly get my things at the top cause it's kind of a made up word. Um, and so and, yeah, and there's, Google a pod, there's a podcast also, right? There is. That is, um, as you guys know, way better than I do, um, trying to do a startup and a nonprofit and um, speaking engagements um, and also a podcast is proving extremely challenging. <laughs> um, so keeping those episodes going, um, I would like to keep going at it. We have a couple episodes in the can that will definitely still release um, a pretty cool one with um, a Berkeley 
uh, economist that talks about a lot of the things that I think are really interesting to me from a, an economic standpoint in the world of geopolitics. Um, and then we also have one um, that we're gonna we're gonna release now under some hazard with um, Jasper Jeffers, who was is now the um, deputy director of special operations on the Joint Staff and was a, a special mission unit commander up until very recently. And so. Um, he and I had uh, have, have uh, been pals for a little while. He was actually in First Ranger Battalion at the same time I was there, but he was in Seco, so oh, cool. I was in ACO. N- n- never did we meet. He was right. also an officer, and I was enlisted, so like uh, we might as well have been in, right. in, on different posts, right? Um, <laughs> different countries, uh, but, yeah. But he, yeah, he's a one star now, um, and is an innovator and a, and a disruptor, and just a really fascinating guy. So hopefully, we'll get those out, and then. Um, I just got to figure out how I want to divide my time up. And uh, as you guys know, like producing a podcast, especially just me, um, is I knew it was going to be a lot of work. I did not have any idea of just how much work um, that was going to be. So I hope I can keep going. My plan is to. Awesome, man. Um, well, I mean, this, it's, you have an incredible story, an incredible like arc of experience through the war on terror. Uh, I really appreciate you sharing some of these stories and anecdotes and just your, your life with us. I mean, it's been really fascinating. It's been phenomenal. Like we've heard stories from you that, that I mean, really sort of the backside, like the behind the scenes that we haven't gotten anywhere else. Yeah, that I, I am grateful to come on and tell them. I I I, I love being a storyteller. Um, I'll I'll give you guys a heads up afterwards if um, I, I get a bunch of calls about um, how I'm never telling these stories again. It's the first time I've done anything um, <laughs> at this length with uh, good questions from knowledgeable guys who who know the inside knowledge here. So you guys know the questions to ask. You you treated me very fairly. You could have definitely um, hammered me on a couple more. I don't know how much your audience knows how 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 much grace you give to folks like me because you could have put me on the spot with a couple of things that you that, didn't. So that, I'm very, that, I appreciate that. We're not, we're not like Barbara Walters. We're like, we're not here for the hard hitting, you know, like we, we understand and we respect, you know, where, what people like you have been through and what you are and aren't allowed to say. And, you know, and we don't want to give you a hard time about, about the other stuff. You know? Yeah, no, I, I definitely appreciate it. I recognized it, um, and, and I'm grateful for and it. You were yeah, a, you're a little facetious about the crack cocaine stuff in, in L.A., but you know, <laughs> other, other than that, you know, seemed fairly straightforward. But uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll think through part two. I can I can, I can can shine it up a little bit maybe the next time. All right, thank well, you. Well, next time you'll be in studio drinking and smoking a cigar. Oh, I hope you will. Uh, I hope, you, I hope yeah. you'll come visit us and, ha- and have a yeah. cigar with us and, and, and drink some scotch. And uh, next Friday we're going to have uh, – I don't know if we're releasing his name publicly yes no d uh, okay i'm not going to say it yet but uh he's a aspiring peasant on twitter he's a former navy seal um name's dave. dave well we'll have him on we'll <laughs> i haven't pre-cleared his whole biography yet but we'll have him on friday and we'll be talking about his time in the teams and and afterwards he's, he's sort of a, a homesteader now interesting yeah. interesting cat he's a cool guy he pops off yeah, yeah, he's, he's an interesting dude. So uh, we'll see you guys next Friday. Um, another pre-recorded episode. We'll get our internet situation sorted out, and uh, we'll see all of you then. Thank you. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.